Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From his undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. Thanksgiving. Ah, Thanksgiving. When you hear the word Thanksgiving, the first thing you may think about is turkey, or maybe football. Or perhaps you look forward to a couple days off from school. In the 1600s, the first Thanksgiving had nothing to do with turkey, football, or school. It did take place during the fall, and soon after the crops in the field were harvested, there was a huge feast shared by many people. Thanksgiving is an annual celebration and a national holiday which commemorates a harvest festival celebrated by the pilgrims in 1621. In the United States, it is held on the fourth Thursday in November. It is often remembered by religious observances and a traditional meal, which today includes turkey, stuffing, mashed potatoes, and gravy, and maybe pumpkin pie. Maybe you don't like pumpkin pie, so you can have something else. The present Thanksgiving holiday did not become official until 1863. Before that time, three different presidents, beginning with George Washington, tried to make it a national holiday. It was limited to state observances and celebrations, but it just didn't gain widespread traction. Many people believed that Thanksgiving should become a national holiday. Sarah Josepha Hell, an editor of a popular women's magazine and author of the poem, Mary Had a Little Lamb, campaigned again to make Thanksgiving a national holiday. Finally, in 1863, President Abraham Lincoln declared Thanksgiving as a federal holiday and signed the proclamation that last Thursday in November would be the day that Thanksgiving would be observed. Since that time, Americans have celebrated Thanksgiving every year with a traditional meal often with family and friends, and giving thanks for blessings, and taking time off from work and school. And since 1924, Thanksgiving has also been celebrated with Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and tons of football. Isn't that great? Thank you, President Lincoln. In 1621, the day you know as Thanksgiving was not called Thanksgiving, but the people who celebrated gave thanks for their blessings, and shared a meal with their family and friends. That special day was not celebrated every year like it is today. Let's go back to year 1620, when about 130 passengers boarded the sea-going vessel, the Mayflower. These people eventually became known as the Pilgrims, and they left their homes in England for many different reasons to come to America. They sailed upon the high seas of the Atlantic Ocean, and after 66 long and grueling storm-tossed days, finally landed at Plymouth in the state of Massachusetts. It was late fall when they arrived, and there were no crops or food to harvest or gather. The first winter was harsh, with only the very few supplies that these travelers brought with them, and finding a few provisions and tools and pots belonging to the Native American people. These members of Plymouth Colony decided to take them and use them to survive. After building a few houses, a larger common house, and a few smaller family houses, these brave souls did their best 
to survive that first winter. Many perished. By the end of winter, only 47 had survived. In the spring of 1621, after that terrible winter, the pilgrims and the nearby Native American people called the Wampanoag people signed a treaty to begin peaceful relations. A Native American named Squanto, who could speak English, met the pilgrims and joined with them, teaching them to hunt, fish, plant crops, and farm the land. He was a big help to the families and people of Plymouth Colony. The fall of 1621 brought a reasonable harvest. The pilgrims of Plymouth Colony had survived their first year in the land. It was time to prepare for another winter, but they wanted to celebrate. They sent out men to hunt ducks and other animals for food. They fished and gathered a portion of their crops to share in the celebration. The Wampanoag people probably thought the pilgrims were preparing for war, but they soon discovered they were not preparing for war. They were hunting and celebrating. A leader of the Wampanoag went to visit pilgrims, and soon it was decided that the two groups of people would celebrate together. A hunting party of Wampanoags went out and hunted deer. This was going to be a great celebration. They partied for three days, playing games, singing songs and dancing, and of course eating, eating venison, which is deer meat, fish, shellfish, corn, duck, lobster, and eel, but not turkey and not pumpkin pie. Prayers and thanks were likely offered at the first celebration, but two years later in 1623 they gathered together again to give thanks to God for rain after a two-month drought. The historic birth of Thanksgiving in America is Plymouth, a small town in Plymouth County, Massachusetts. Thanksgiving is a celebration with family and friends, and a special meal honoring the early settlers of America, and a time to give thanks for your blessings. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It's the 16th of November, year of our Lord, 2018. Yeah, we're going to do a Thanksgiving podcast. Going to cover from the history, which, you know, most of us know the history, but we're going to go through some of it. We're going to go through the history of the NFL and Thanksgiving. A couple interesting things I didn't know. Military Thanksgiving. Why liberals destroy Thanksgiving and the news and social media nuggets. So that intro was a little history video that I found online. Um, of course, we all know it comes from the pilgrims of 1621, the harvest meal. And then we all come together and have time. But there are five facts that maybe you didn't know about Thanksgiving. And this comes from Time Magazine, of all things. So here we go. If the pilgrims had their way, we'd be fasting rather than feasting every year on the fourth Thursday of November. Luckily for us, some changes happened over the past few centuries to make Thanksgiving the holiday we know today. The devout settlers at Plymouth Rock initially planned on giving thanks for their first fall harvest through prayer and abstaining from food. But the Wampanoag Indians had a different idea of celebration, which included dancing, games, and feasting. While the first Thanksgiving was held in 1621, it would take more than 150 years before all 13 colonies celebrated Thanksgiving at once. Still, some presidents weren't fans, 
Thomas Jefferson called Thanksgiving the most ridiculous idea ever conceived, and it took a 17-year letter-writing campaign from a magazine editor to finally convince Abraham Lincoln to issue a decree recognizing the historic tradition. Finally, in 1941, Thanksgiving became the legal holiday that consistently falls on the fourth Thursday of November. Thanksgiving's date returns to the traditional fourth Thursday in November. And as for the presidential turkey pardon... There's some dispute over who really started it. Abraham Lincoln is said to have saved a turkey at the request of his son. While Harry Truman is shown with one here, there's actually no proof he ever pardoned one. That leaves George H.W. Bush, who appears to be the first president to have officially pardoned a turkey in ceremony. Although Thanksgiving's traditions have changed, one thing's for sure. The holiday will always be a good reminder for us to be thankful. Interesting. Of course, we also know that more than 200 years later, President Abraham Lincoln declared the final Thursday in November as a national day of Thanksgiving. Congress made Thanksgiving Day official in 1941. Did you know Sarah Joseph Hale petitioned for a national Thanksgiving Day for close to 40 years, believing Thanksgiving should be like the 4th of July? Sarah Joseph Hale, the enormously influential magazine editor and author who waged a tireless campaign to make Thanksgiving a national holiday in the mid-19th century, was also the author of Mary Had a Little Lamb. Eee, bet you didn't know that, did you? In 2001, the U.S. Postal Service issued a commemorative Thanksgiving stamp designated by the art, or designed by the artist Margaret Cusack in a style resembling a cornucopia. Some other interesting stats, 54.3 million people are projected to travel next week for Thanksgiving. Um, later on in the military section, I'll talk about some of my favorite Thanksgivings, uh, and usually involve travel. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, Minnesota is the top turkey-producing state in America, which with a planned production of 46.5 million. That was in 2011. Six states, Minnesota, North Carolina, Arkansas, Missouri, Virginia, and Indiana, account for two-thirds of the 248 million turkeys that will be raised in the U.S. That's amazing. The National Turkey Federation estimates that 46 million turkeys, one-fifth of the annual total of 235, gets consumed (laughs) on Thanksgiving Day, which is a shitload of turkey if you think about it. In a survey conducted by the National Turkey Federation, nearly 88% of Americans said they eat turkey at Thanksgiving. The average weight of turkeys purchased is 15 pounds, which means that 690 million pounds of turkeys were consumed, and this was in 2007. Cranberry production in the U.S. is expected to reach 750 million pounds. Wisconsin, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Oregon, and Washington are the top cranberry states. Illinois, California, Pennsylvania, New York are the major pumpkin growing states. They produce 1.1 billion pounds of pumpkin. And the total U.S. production is 1.5 billion. Sweet potatoes is the most plentiful produced in North Carolina, which grew 972 million pounds of sweet potatoes in 2010. California and Mississippi are other big sweet potato producing states. And the United States together generates 2.4 billion pounds of tubers. According to the Guinness Book of World Record, the largest pumpkin pie ever baked weighed 220 pounds, 2,020 pounds, sorry, and measured just over 12 feet long. It was placed on, 
It was baked on October 8, 2005 by the new Brennan Giant Pumpkin Growers. Included 900 pounds of pumpkin, 62 gallons of evaporated milk, 155 dozen eggs. Oh my God, that's a lot of eggs. That's making me gaggy. 300 pounds sugar, 3.5 pounds of salt, 7 pounds of cinnamon, 2 pounds of pumpkin spice, and 250 pounds of crust. Thanksgiving around the country, three towns in the U.S. take their name for the traditional Thanksgiving bird. Turkey, Texas, Turkey Creek, Louisiana, and Turkey, North Carolina. Originally known as the Macy's Christmas Parade to signify the launch of the Christmas shopping season, the first Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade took place in 1924. It was launched by Macy's employees and featured animals from the Central Park Zoo. Today, some 3 million people attend the annual parade and 44 million people watch. And I'm back to watching it after I boycotted it after their dudes in drag trying to explain that to my grandkids pissed me off and I cut up my Macy's card and I've never shopped there again. I won't shop, but I'll watch it. Tony Sarg, a children's book illustrator and puppeteer, designed the first giant hot air balloon for Macy's and that was in 1927. He later created the elaborate mechanical animated window displays that grace the facades of the New York store from Thanksgiving to Christmas. Snoopy has appeared as a giant balloon in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade more times than any other character in history. As a flying ace, Stubby made his sixth appearance in 2006. Which leads us into our NFL Thanksgiving tradition. Going to play a soundbite, but I did not know, you know, I, I looked up an article on why the frick the Detroit Lions always are in Thanksgiving football games. Never made sense to me. It's always them. And it comes from the tradition that they were a young team, small market, and at the time, and they broadcasted a game and then stayed on it, and the same goes for the Dallas Cowboys, who were a young team, and they wanted some fanfare, so they kind of volunteered for the shit in the fed-fledging days of the NFL, and now it's a tradition. They always play the Thanksgiving football game, so... Here's a cute video, or not cute video, good video from ESPN on the history of the NFL and Thanksgiving. Every year, millions of Americans lay on their couches in tryptophan-induced comas to watch the Detroit Lions and Dallas Cowboys play football. But why? Why do these two play every year? Even when they're starting guys like Quincy Carter and Joey Harrington? Well, let me tell you. The year was 1934, and big-time radio station owner George Richards had just bought the Portsmouth, Ohio Spartans and moved them to Detroit to become the Lions. Hashtag Spartans. But despite having a good squad, Richards couldn't get the fans to care about his new football team or even show up to games. So he came up with a desperate marketing ploy, play a game on Thanksgiving. Richards scheduled a matchup against the undefeated defending NFL champion Chicago Bears and used his radio cloud to convince NBC to broadcast the game nationwide. Not only did the Lions sell out the stadium, they had to turn away fans at the gate. And so a tradition was born. 30 years later, the Dallas Cowboys were struggling under a young head coach named Tom Landry and were looking for a way to boost their popularity. So when they were offered a chance to play on Thanksgiving in 1966, they reluctantly accepted. Turns out, it might have been one of the best decisions they ever made. Texans were into holiday football, too, and the team broke its attendance record completely stuffing <laughs> the Cotton Bowl. And America got a second helping of tradition. Finally, in 2006, the NFL decided six straight hours of football. That's not enough. So the league added up a night game for the lineup. If you think about it, it's just like Thanksgiving dessert. You don't need it, but you want it. And why the hell not? 
And yes, in the background there is Thanksgiving music. That is a song by George Winston. It's actually called Thanksgiving. It's one of my favorites. And it might be a little distracting, but if they figured a little background music on this festive holiday. Did I just say it that way? Oh my God. Festive holiday podcast was worthwhile. And uh, it'll stop once we hit the liberal section. So, Thanksgiving Day football, once a tradition among the high schools and colleges of America, has more or less faded into oblivion in most sections of the country. But it's still live in the NFL. Two franchises, Detroit and Dallas, where Thanksgiving Day football has become a normal, expected way of life. Beginning in 1966, Dallas has missed playing on the holiday only in 1975 and 77. However, when it comes to Thanksgiving Day football, NFL style, most fans think of the Lions, and the tradition goes back to 34. It was their first year in Detroit, and local radio executive George A. Richard had purchased the Portsmouth, Ohio Spartans and moved the team to Detroit. The Spartans were members of the NFL from 30 to 33. With the Spartans, not only was Richard bringing a proven quality team to Detroit, he was also bringing at least one superstar, Earl Dutch Clark, one of the most versatile backs ever to play the game. Clark had an outstanding supporting cast in Detroit backfield with big, talented line anchored by Frank Christensen. Even though he knew there was some risk in scheduling a game on Thanksgiving Day, Richards also recognized that his Lions were taking a backseat to the baseball Tigers in the sports pages. So as one way to attract Motor City fans during the team's first season, he opted for a Thanksgiving Day contest. The matchup between the Lions and the world champion Chicago Bears. Boo! Proved to be an all-time classic. The 34 Lions had not allowed a touchdown until their eighth game and entered the game with the Bears with a 10-1 record. But with 11 straight wins, Chicago had an even better record. Still, a win would put the Lions in first place tied with the Bears. Only a game left and repeat clash with the Bears in Chicago just three days later on December 2nd. The 26,000 tickets for the Turkey Day Clash in the University of Detroit Stadium was sold out two weeks in advance. It was estimated another 25,000 would attend had there been seats available. The Bears edged out the Lions 1916, the classic holiday struggle, and then prevailed 10-7 three days later to clinch the NFL Western Division crown. Not despondent over the last loss, two losses, Richard season reasoned that his team had done well in its first year in Detroit. His confidence was awarded the next year when the Lions won the 35 championship. The key game and the title drive came on Thanksgiving Day when the Lions defeated the Bears 14-2 to clinch the West Championship. Thus, the football and Thanksgiving tradition became firmly established in Detroit with the exception of six-season gap from 39 to 44, of course, due to wars. The Detroit Lions' Thanksgiving Day heritage gained national attention in another way, starting with the very first game in 34. Knowing the publicity potential of radio, Richards, along with NBC Radio, set up a 94-station network to broadcast Lion Bear Showdown, the famous announcing team of Graham McManney and Don Wilson described the action. Cowboys, same concept. We kind of broke down the whole thing. Let me get to the Cowboys section because these, these articles repeat themselves. Uh, the Cowboys, too, jumped on the opportunity to play on Thanksgiving as an extra little bump for their popularity. When the chance to take the field at Thanksgiving arose in 66, it might have been a huge benefit for the Cowboys. Sure, the Lions had filled their stadium for the Thanksgiving games, but there was no assurance that Texas would warm to holiday football so quickly. Cowboy general manager Tex Schramm, though, was something of a marketing genius. 
among his other achievements, the creation of the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders. Schramm saw Thanksgiving Day game as a great way to get the team some national publicity, even if it struggled under you, new young head coach Tom Landry. I mean, can you think of a time where the Cowboys weren't super popular and Tom Landry was struggling? Hmm. Schramm signed the Cowboys up for the game, even though the NFL is worried that the fans might just not show up. The league guaranteed the team a certain gate revenue in case nobody bought tickets. But the fans showed up in droves, and teams broke into attendance record of 80,000 people. Crammed to the Con Bowl. The Cowboys beat the Cleveland Browns 26-14 that day, and second Thanksgiving pigskin tradition caught hold. Since 1966, the Cowboys have missed having Thanksgiving games only twice. Only twice. This year's football lineup is pretty damn good. Lions at Bears, 11.30 Central. Dallas at Washington, 3.30 Central. I'm watching that game because I hope the, the Redskins beat them, motherfuckers. And the best game will be the Falcons and Saints on NBC nightly late night football at 7.30. I did this before last night's Packers losing again on the road to the Seahawks and the season's pretty much lost at 4-5-1. So I'm not as excited about the football portion of this podcast. But I found a couple articles I thought were pretty interesting. The 15 greatest NFL Thanksgiving game performances. Clint Longley, QB, Cowboys versus Redskins, 1974. Even after 43 years, no Thanksgiving performance has packed more shock value. At the height of the Cowboy-Redskin rivalry, Washington knocked Roger Staubach out of the game with a third-quarter concussion, forcing Dallas to go to rookie Longley, trailing 16-3. He threw three touchdown passes, including the 50-yarder to Drew Pearson with 28 seconds left. That won it for the Cowboys, 23-4-23. Then there was a murder. I mean, O.J. Simpson running back for the Bills. Simpson kept the national TV audience tuned in long after his Bills were out of it against the Lions. Detroit cruised to a 27-14 win, but O.J. rushed for a then single-game record 273 yards, breaking his own record of 250 set three years earlier during the 2000 season. Walter Payton surpassed that a year later, but no one topped either of them in 2000. Randy Moss, wide receiver, Vikings versus Cowboy, 1998. One of the all-time best revenge games, Moss got back at the Cowboys from passing them over in that year's draft. The rookie caught three passes, all touchdowns, 50 yards plus, including a flea flicker two minutes into the game, and one bomb while it was being interfered with. The Vikings won 46-36 and wound up one missed field goal away from the Super Bowl. I remember that year, and I hated every second of it because I fucking hated them. Jason Garrett, QB Cowboys versus Packers, 1994. Third string and future head coach replaced injured starter Troy Aikman and backup Rodney Pete fell behind 17-3 in the first half. Endured Brett Favre throwing four touchdown passes to Sterling Sharp and won 42-31. I remember this game. I was running on an indoor track in Fort Lewis. Oh my God, that was a horrible game. The Cowboys scored 36 second-half points, and Garrett was 15 for 26 for 311 yards and two touchdowns. Before that, he had never thrown; he had, o- had thrown only 24 career NFL passes. Emmett Smith again, Cowboys Redskins 2002. Smith, a Thanksgiving staple like Sanders for more than a decade, was coming to the end of his days in Dallas. The Cowboys would cut him at the end of the season. It was his last game against their rival. Chad Hutchinson was the quarterback, and the opposing coach was Steve Spurrier. Smith ran for 144 yards, only a second 100-yard game all season. 
Tied for second all-time 100-yard game behind Walter Payton and the Cowboys won 27 points. Peyton Manning, 2004 Colts versus Lions. This game all but assured he'd break Dan Marino's single season touchdown pass record of 48. He finished the game with 41 with five games left and ended up with 49. Manning did it in three quarters, too, throwing his first three to Brandon Stokely and last three to Marvin Harrison. It was a lopsided Thanksgiving game, and there's even been 41-9. to And on that day, Barry Sanders received his Hall of Fame ring. Tony Romo, QB, Cowboys versus Buccaneers, 2006. The Cowboys knew they had something special and undrafted Romo pretty, pretty quickly the first half season as a starter. In only six career starts, Romo ripped Tampa Bay's defense 38-10 to a route. He was 22 for, of 29 for 36 yards. Two went to the late uh, five TDs. I'm sorry. I read that all fucked up. I tell I don't do sports reporting. Two went to the late Terry Glenn and two to Mario Barbo III. Barry Sanders versus the Bears, 97. The annual Thanksgiving appetizer for a decade. Sanders' best show was uh, in this one. 167 yards and three touchdowns, including a 40-yarder, and humiliated the Bears' defenders on virtually every carrier. carry. The, Bear, the Lions won 55-20. to Center moved to the second all-time rushing list and retired up the next season. Still number two. Matt Stafford and Calvin Johnson, Lions versus Eagles in 2015. This would mark the last time Staff and Megatron will celebrate Thanksgiving at Ford Field, and they ended up 45 to 14 round of the Eagles. Stafford ripped the Eagles for 337 yards and five TDs, with Johnson accounting for 93 receiving yards and three of those TDs. With it, Johnson set the record for the most receiving TDs, 10 in Thanksgiving history. Bob Greasy in 77, Dolphins versus the Cardinals. How can a six-touchdown play on Thanksgiving be so forgotten over time? It was rare holiday game in St. Louis back when there was a move to stop Dallas from monopolizing the day. Greasy threw all six in the three quarters on just 23 attempts, and the Dolphins blew the cards out 55-14. to 14. Wow. Roger Brown, defensive end Lions versus the Packers. Are you getting the theme? It's always against my Packers. Not so much the historically overlooked Brown, but the entire line, the fearsome and foursome, before the Rams bogarted the nickname, Brown, Alex Karras, Sam Williams, and Darren Darius McCord led a Lion defense that sacked Bart Starr 11 times, including one for a safety, as Detroit whipped Vince Lombardi's 10-0 defending champion Packers 26-14. Brown was on seven of the sacks. It was Robert Griffin in 2012, Tom Brady in 2010. I'm getting bored with this. Antonio Brown versus the Colts was the number one, they said? Yeah. Huh. That was in 2016. Top 10 Thanksgiving games. This one's good. 2010, or 2012, excuse me. New England Patriots 49, New York Jets 17. The Bud Fumble. Everybody remember that? I watched that. It was with my son. It was funny as hell. 2010. Packers 27. Lions 15. Thanksgiving's all about to get together with family and friends and celebrating all the good things that are happening in their life. Oh, that. And stomping defenseless dudes laying on the ground. That was a Dominic and Sue stomping on Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. He's a dick. Number 8. Eagles. 27, Dallas 0, 1989. 
It all started when Buddy Ryan cut punter Lewis Zendejas, and then they got into war words. Buddy says Lewis couldn't kick. Lewis says Buddy couldn't coach. Zendejas signed with the Cowboys and would meet his old team on Thanksgiving. Numerous Eagle players remember seeing Ryan and other coaches meeting with backup linebacker Jesse Small during the week, an odd occurrence that turned odder when Small appeared to take out Zadeos after a third-quarter punt. It was alleged there was a $200 bounty on the punter and $500 on Troy Aikman. Bounty gate. Remember this? Former University of Miami head coach Jimmy Johnson in the midst of an embarrassing 1-50 rookie season in the NFL wasn't happy. He said, Ryan, I have absolutely no respect for the way they played the game. I would have said something to Ryan, but he wouldn't stand on the field long enough. He put his big fat rear end in the dressing room. The next game, Bounty Bowl 2, saw Philly fans being their normal classless selves, throwing snowballs at the Cowboys coaches, players, and CBS announcers. Vern Lundquist said he'd enjoy a root canal better than calling that game. Just remember this the next time an Eagles fan rolls his or her eyes at the snowballs at Santa Story. They threw snowballs at Papa Vern. That's almost as bad. The Bounty Bowls are two of the most famous games in Eagle history. The rest of the NFC East has won 12 of the 49 Super Bowls. <laughs> that pretty much sums it up. But they won this year, or last year. 94-42 Cowboys, 31 Packers. That was a good game. We just talked about it. I'm not talking again. 2012, Washington Redskins, 38. Dallas Cowboys, 31. That was Robert Griffin. Kind of already talked about that. 23 Bears, 17 Detroit in overtime. This was 1980. The Bears were down 17-3 in the fourth quarter before scoring two touchdowns, including game-tying scramble as time expires. Then Dave Williams took the opening kickoff of overtime back 95 yards, setting a record for the shortest regular season overtime NFL in history at 16 seconds. That mark has since been lower now, all the way down to 13 seconds earlier this year by the Saints, whenever this article was written. Tim Tebow and the Broncos hold the all-time mark when they scored in 11 seconds in 2012 wild card playoff. 1976, Detroit Lions 27, Buffalo 14. That's the O.J. Simpson Bowl. 98, Lions 19, Pittsburgh 16. I'm not going to go into that. Number 2, Miami Dolphins 16, Dallas Cowboys 14. Yeah. And then the number 1, of course, is Leon Let Bowl. Yeah, that was a good one. That was, was that the, that was 93. That was it. The Leon Lightbold. That was it. Den, Dick Enberg called the game over on NBC. Is that the ball stayed untouched? The ball would have been whistled dead. The Cowboys would have won. No, Leon, no. What is he doing? Leon, no. Instead, Leon Lett charged in, touched the damn ball. Yeah. And the number one game they have is the Dallas Cowboys 24, Washington Redskins 23 from 1974. In our insta-history world that dictates every best-ever list be topped by a game or event that happened in the last decade, it might be jarring to see a 41-year-old game atop the list. The Clint Longley game, by far the most famous Thanksgiving game ever, making a household name out of a rookie quarterback who only started two games and threw 68 passes in his whole career and was out of the league by the age of 25. Sucker-punching Roger Starbuck didn't help that. It's also the worst defeat in the long, illustrious history of the Washington Redskins, with Clint Longley's name being a sort of football four-letter world in the district and serving as one of the NFL's great one-hit wonders. Nary a Thanksgiving goes by that my mom doesn't mention it. The Redskins did eventually win the division, it should be noted, thus showing the true pain of the day. No one remembers that, and all turned out okay. 
The gist, with the Redskins winning a crucial game that could have clinched the NFC East, Staubach got hurt and was replaced by rookie Longley, who had thrown exactly zero passes in the NFL. I still don't know who Clint Longley is, Joe Theismann said later. What has been a 16-3 Redskin lead was quickly narrowed, but a, but a win was basically in the books with Washington winning 23-17 with the Cowboys at midfield with just over 30 seconds left. Then Longley hit Drew Pearson for the 50-yard bomb, and boom, 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 we already talked about it. So... There is the history of the NFL and football. Um, I know it might not be as exciting as I thought it was going to be. I thought it was interesting because I just never knew why. I just know I love it. And especially years like this when my Packers aren't playing because it ruins Thanksgiving. But I do remember a couple years when my daughter, my daughter's a big fat Packer fan. And my son was watching NFL football. He doesn't anymore. He's straight up college football. Um... And actually having the game on during Thanksgiving dinner, which I don't think will ever happen again. I think my wife would kill me if I did that. But back in the day, I was pretty footballed up. Me and my son would watch football all day Saturday and Saturday night. And Sunday was football to the end. And me and him would go into our rec room and watch NFL prime time. Back when it was uh, Boomer. It was good. No, I don't watch it. So... There's the fun part of Thanksgiving. We now sojourn into the bad part of Thanksgiving. And I want you to understand, I got all these sound bites by liberals ruining Thanksgiving on YouTube. And when I did it and did a search for how conservatives can make it through Thanksgiving with their Trump-hating families. Because I kept seeing Trump-hating family stuff, right? Um, That's when I got the whole little vignettes you're going to hear about how LGBT people can deal with their Trump family and counter-argue their stupidity, racist, xenophobic, transphobic, homophobic bullshit during Thanksgiving. Because YouTube, Google, and everything else, when you search for what you want, they shove their agenda on you. So most of the good sound bites you hear, I didn't search for liberal stuff. I searched for conservative rebuttals, but you can't get that because everything's biased. All right, let's go from another one. Uh, This is from Joe from uh, Connecticut. Luckily for me, I come from a very progressive family, but they are old school. Most people in my family believe we shouldn't talk politics at the table. But then there is my uncle. He's the kind of conservative that thinks the Koch brothers are just job creators. And we attacked Iraq because Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11. Still? Still he thinks that? Yeah, apparently, uncle. My other uncle has a painting of Che Guevara in his living room and worships the Young Turks. Wait, what? Jank! <laughs> Jank Uger! Joe, well, first off... That's I like punching Sam on the stomach. You what? just punch Sam... The, are what? you going to talk about Mark Barron now? Does he say anything <laughs> yeah, about Mark Barron in the letter? Why? Why? Why is he? I cut why, that part of the email. Where's your uh, uncle? Um, <laughs> how to deal with your progressive? Of uncle course. That's my Jank okay. Uger impression. Of course. That's the only th- two things. Like, uh, Young Turks and uh, Majority Report <laughs> are constantly playing in Janine's house. That's actually that's true. Um, uh, 
he, he's great, but when my crazy uncle is spouting off at the mouth about Mexicans taking our jobs or President Obama's obvious connection to the Muslim Brotherhood. Again, he's just got to say, I'm sorry you're racist. I, every, I, you know, it's bad for everybody that you're racist. Everyone sits there quietly rolling their eyes, except for me. I'll state some facts and numbers, drop some knowledge on them. But it seems like there's no way to penetrate the right wing wall. Facts don't affect him. And the rest of my family pushes to change the subject like good liberals should. I'm sick of this help. Thanks, but that, that's the thing. Facts. You can tell a right winger anything but the truth. They will believe anything but the truth. That makes them confused and angry. That's what they will resist. A, a fact or truth. There's no point in going through facts and figures. So the only thing I could say is, again, you just go cut to the heart of it and say, I'm sorry you are frightened of brown people and modern society i'm sorry that multi modern society is is alarming to you let me amend that that advice so you should say that basically after dessert has been cleared that's because you don't want to actually um like you know put the entire meal but but the, the point is i think that you cannot convince a guy like that but he has value Insofar as there may be other people at the table who you can actually convince based upon what this guy is saying. You know, so in other words, you're never going to convince the guy who says that Obama has connections to the Muslim Brotherhood. However, and the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers or and the International <laughs> Brotherhood of Electrical Workers I really have a but, connection to them. Either. But, neither. Yeah. but I know. You can discredit this guy's worldview for the other people sitting at the table in the event that there are some who who are gettable by letting him talk. That's basically that's that's basically right. But there's almost a, a thing like it's tacitly. It's like, uh, it's like you agree. You know, when when people are silent, why is it always the bullies that 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 get to say? I'm not saying and everybody else has to be reasonable because then those that don't know might think, oh, nobody's saying anything. Perhaps. Crazy well, Uncle uh, is saying Robert things. Robert Kennedy said, right? All it takes uh, for evil to prevail is just uh, for good men to do nothing. Right. Is I that, don't. That, uh, I think Robert Kennedy said it, but I think others said it before Martin others. Luther King may have. Let's talk a little bit about Thanksgiving, which is coming up. How do you deal with your right-wing family or relatives or your crazy uncle at Thanksgiving? Ryan wrote to me saying, hey, David, can you provide some retorts or tips for the ill-informed in-laws or relatives that we're bound to encounter over the Thanksgiving holiday? Suggestions might be why we should have free college tuition or why Ben Carson and Donald Trump would be bad presidents. I'm going to issue some general tips here because I actually have had to deal with this quite a bit. Do not argue over points of fact. I think this is one of the key things. Sometimes you'll start hearing crazy stuff said like, Oh, you know, the earth is 6,000 years old or Donald Trump is, I don't even know. You, you, you'll just hear arguments about points of fact. Abstinence only sex education reduces the number of abortions people get. My focus when it's a family conversation, instead of starting to play point counterpoint with points of fact, would be to appeal to the empathetic family connection. Try to say, listen, uh, my, well, I don't know how much you want to say, but maybe you have a personal story where you can say, my fiance, my current fiance, uh, had abstinence-only sex education, and she had no idea how pregnancy and birth control actually worked, and she got pregnant, and she needed an abortion. You obviously are empathetic towards my fiance, right? I don't know. I think it, it as a general thing, 
the arguments around points of fact at the Thanksgiving dinner table, I don't think are the way to go. I think, you know, keep it about family, keep it about people. Uh, yeah, talk, ask uh, how the stuffing was made, uh, <laughs> or just be silent altogether. I mean, I guess if someone asks you a political question right. or says, Dave, what's your take on this, sure. then it's rude to stay silent. But It I- is, and but I would pick my battles, right? Because, sure, if you're asked, hey, just out of curiosity, like, what's your view on abortion, which is not really light Thanksgiving conversation, right, for it to come up like that. I could see it more coming up as, oh, these turkeys cost twice as much because of Obama and the jobs and blah, 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 blah. I would say, oh, what, what do you know? I'm curious. What do you know about job creation under President Obama? Oh, he's killed jobs. Really? Oh, where, where did you get that information? Like, where, did you get it from the Bureau of Labor Statistics or where did you get it? Asking questions in this way, I think, is a better approach, right, than starting to accuse people of stuff. Yeah, because you can, uh, they, they can make themselves look foolish, I guess, if uh, with a certain line of questioning. Yeah. But uh, they might still get angry with you. I, I think really it's, it's uh, you know, every situation is a little different. Uh, some family members might be more hostile and aggressive than others. Yeah. But, uh, you know, people start drinking, Dave. There's oh, it can get crazy. And, yeah, things I, get I would also suggest triangulate, though. As Lewis said, different people might have different views there. Try to find whoever is your closest ally politically and work with them, even if it's only on some base point of agreement, right? Try to get some yes out of someone else at the table that they're on your side and triangulate and work together against the crazy uncle or the outrageous in-law or whoever it is. Or make a phone call, tell everyone you've come down with an illness, <laughs> and play Fallout 4 and watch Netflix all night. You can always just pretend to fall down and you've got to go home because you fell and that's it. Uh, fall, just fall down. Just show up. Uh, pretend to trip over something, bang your knee, and say, I've, I've got to go. Hey, welcome back. So good to see you. Please, come in, make yourself at home. Now, while you're here, I want you to have as good a time as possible, but I also want you to be able to take some of that goodness away with you. So I'm going to be letting you know what we have set up here, but also how you can kind of take it with you wherever you're going next, especially if it's somewhere that's unsupportive. First things first, I know that when we're a little bit stressed, we sometimes forget to take care of ourselves properly, even our most basic needs. So I've got a load of water set out and different drinks so you can stay hydrated. We've cooked some of everyone's favorite foods um, that they can all eat. Uh, If you need some rest, we have the guest bedroom set up um, so you can go there wherever you want or if you want to take a walk feel free or if you need to keep busy and be helpful then I'm sure there's some stuff we could uh, do together in the kitchen. Taking care of yourself is something you should be doing wherever you are so if it's something you're likely to forget maybe set reminders on your phone or take a moment to listen to your body and work out what you need. Now I know that you texted me a couple of your limitations before we came so just let you know um, there are a couple of people who won't go into the church service because it's not their thing uh, and there's a couple of things that we're probably going to try not to discuss because it's going to make some people uncomfortable. If it's possible and you feel comfortable maybe consider talking to your family before you arrive for the holidays about limitations that you might have in terms of things that you don't want to do or that you're uncomfortable talking about. Now hopefully there's not going to be any worries for your physical safety while you're here but mental safety safety is just as important. So know that you can give yourself time and that you can give yourself space while you're here. If you need to step up for a minute, let us know. If you need to leave early or arrive late, that's totally fine with us. Your safety is so important. When you're not here, maybe you've gone to visit family or in a situation that might be unsafe or might be uncomfortable, it's totally fine for you to leave early or arrive late or step out in the middle if you need a while to yourself. 
If you feel like you're going into a situation that might be difficult, uncomfortable, volatile, then maybe consider having a plan to get out of there. Have someone that you can call if you need to leave, who's gonna be able to pick you up and make sure you get somewhere safe. Now I know that there are a lot of people here and most people you haven't met. So what I've done is I've got some name badges. So if you put your name and you put your pronoun as well, we'll make sure that everyone respects them. But I know that you might be going into some spaces which aren't as accepting of your identity, your pronouns or your partner keep those facts close. Maybe physically in a notebook, maybe set more reminders on your phone. Just remind yourself that you're valid in whatever space you're in. Speaking of validation, we actually sort of have a little queer library being set up at the moment. A lot of people bought secondhand uh, books, DVDs, music that was by or about LGBT people, so uh, feel free to have a rummage around in there. If you're feeling low and lonely within your identity in an uncomfortable or unsafe space, then I think it's always good to find the beauty in it, to find the positivity. There are movies, TV shows, podcasts, books, music, which show being LGBT in a positive and beautiful light. Seek them out. If you know that you can listen or watch or read while you're at this uncomfortable unsafe space, then do that. If not, consider doing it before and afterwards to get you through. So I know that a couple of your friends are here already and don't worry, we've kind of arranged the seating of the table so that everyone is close to at least some people that they already know, just so everyone's feeling nice and relaxed. But maybe sometime soon you're going to be in a space where you don't have anyone physically there who's gonna be able to support you. In that case, consider scheduling calls with supportive friends. Help each other out, have a conversation, remind yourself that there are people out there who love you. You might be able to spend time with supportive online communities that you're a part of, or even look into helplines or support groups if that's something that's going to help you. My last piece of advice, I suppose, is a little bit harder, potentially, than setting a reminder on your phone or watching a film. For a lot of LGBT people, a big part of their difficulty around the holidays is the feeling of isolation, is the lack of community. And I think that found family, especially little queer families, are fantastic, but when there's so few community spaces for us, difficult to find. If you do have a little queer family of your own, that is completely valid. It doesn't have to be people that you're related to that you call your family and that you spend your holidays with. It can be friends, partners, those are all wonderful people who love you, who support you, who you love and support in return. You can spend an amazing holiday with not having to worry. Sorry, that was very serious and long-winded for a welcome chat. You can probably smell we actually just got pastries out of the oven before you arrived, so they should be cool enough to eat now. I'll let you get inside. You can say hi to everyone. And at some point, if you would like to sign the guest book, I've set one up in the comments, so... Let me know what you'd love to see at a queer-friendly Christmas and I'll see if I can make it happen next year. I hope you find this useful whenever you're watching it. And because I'm me, I have left some links to resources in the description that you might find useful. You are a wonderful, lovable penguin and I hope you have a fantastic day. Until I see you next time, bye. The holidays are here, which for most people means lots of food and lots of family. But for queer and trans people of color, the word family can mean something entirely different. Don't get me wrong, a lot of the families that we were raised in are totally supportive, but for other folks, their families don't even understand who they are, which can lead to a lot of fights, a lot of rejection, and a lot of awkward moments. Her name's Veronica, but 
Veronica's a girl's name. Did you know that? So when we think about families, we're not just talking about the families that we were born into. We're also talking about the families that we create for ourselves. Throughout history, queer people have created our own families. We've constructed spaces to be our most authentic selves. Whether that's the house ball scene, political organizing, queer bars, or even online. We've always built spaces to make each other feel loved and resist the forces that are trying to break us. But this year, our communities feel like they're under attack because they are. President-elect Donald Trump ran on a platform that promises to deport millions of immigrants, gut abortion rights, and give more power to already militarized police forces. But he also chose as his running mate, Mike Pence, one of the most virulently homophobic politicians in this country. So this holiday season, it's so important to reach out to the people in your community who you love or want to build with. Now, more than ever before, we have to strengthen the bonds that unite us in the face of hate. It's easier to believe in a benevolent God, the baby Jesus, than it is in some kind of theory about uh, global warming. It's just easier, is it not? Is it time to put the global warming hysteria on ice? Uh, yes, it is, David. It'll save us tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, and that's why they've changed global warming now to climate change. can't believe we're still talking about this, but 97% of scientists agree that human-made climate change is a thing that's happening. Not to mention, experts are now saying that climate change causes global instability, which makes it easier for terrorist organizations to recruit and grow. If anybody had had a gun in that Paris yes, concert hall, that a lot. Yes. anybody around, you could have stopped it yes. fairly quickly, but there's no such thing as handguns around in Paris, I don't no, believe. No, no. Okay, no. Study after study shows that isn't actually true. An analysis by Mother Jones of 62 public mass shootings over 30 years found zero cases where an ordinary civilian stopped an attack with a gun. When they tried, it often resulted in the death or injury of that person. You don't see denunciations of radical Islam by name by mainstream Islamic groups. Stand up and denounce what's happened in, behind, in, in the name of your prophet. Come on, let's, let's hear you condemn ISIS. I feel like we have this talk every time there's a terrorist attack, but Muslims across the world have already condemned ISIS and their actions. The Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which represents 1.4 billion Muslims around the world, condemned ISIS, saying that the organization has nothing to do with Islam and its principles that call for justice, kindness, fairness, freedom of faith, and coexistence. The legislation requires schools to allow gender-confused students to use bathrooms and locker rooms based on their perceived gender identity. As a devious teen growing up, <laughs> I would tell girls that I'm a girl trapped in a boy's body just so I could sneak into the girl's bathroom. Okay, all these laws do is ban discrimination against LGBT people in areas like housing, employment, and public accommodation. We've actually had laws like this on the books for years in cities, states, and school districts across the country. You know how many times a man has pretended to be a woman to sneak into a woman's bathroom? Zero times. Ever. There's no way that the state of California can deny a marriage license to four spouses now, eight spouses, right. or I would say three human spouses and the canine right. they absolutely love. 
So I really hope this is the last Thanksgiving that we're talking about this. But in states like Massachusetts, we've actually already had gay marriage for over 10 years. And people aren't marrying their dogs. No slippery slope. Divorce rates are actually lower in states that legalize gay marriage first. And every serious study on this has found that gay parents can raise kids just as well as straight parents. Videos targeting Planned Parenthood are stirring up a lot of controversy. They show officials there seemingly trying to harvest fetal tissue to make money. Planned Parenthood's sale of aborted baby parts is about money. Not true, and has never been true. Multiple investigations, including a congressional Republican investigation, have cleared Planned Parenthood of any wrongdoing or legal activity. And there's no federal funding for abortion anyway. So if you defunded Planned Parenthood based on deceptively edited videos, what you'd actually be doing is creating a public health crisis by denying women access to things like birth control and cancer screenings. They have all said that it is likely that ISIS will infiltrate the refugee population. The when they attack and people country. die, no, no. when Hang they on. attack like in Paris you, and people die, you know, who has blood on their hands? You? This is just straight up fear mongering. The process of screening refugees entering the United States is one of the most intense and security focused in the world. And denying access to families, including women and children fleeing from violence in Syria, undermines our credibility abroad. And it goes against some of our most basic values as a country. All we want to do is have a photo on that ID or have you show a photo identification card in conjunction with that ID just to ensure that you are who you say you are when voting. So we know for a fact that there are deceased people whose identities are being used in elections in South Carolina. Voter fraud is not a thing that's happening in the United States. From 2000 to 2014, there were 31 credible instances of voter fraud in a period where there were over a billion ballots cast. This isn't a thing that's happening. Thanksgiving is coming up. How many of you expect to have conversations about politics or President Trump at your Thanksgiving <coughs> day table? Well, I'm some of that. I can. You I, won't. You say no, no. I'm the only Republican in my family. <laughs> they literally just no. They won't let you talk. I, I won't eat. <laughs> so. Everyone in my family is a Trump supporter, so we will not be discussing politics at our Thanksgiving dinner. We have um, a good majority of the people I work with are Trump supporters, but there are others that are not. And that's sometimes we've had to put that off limits in the, in the uh, lunchroom because it's sometimes doesn't end very well. In my family, it's always pleasant. And we've got, you know, we've got um, a few that are on the other side. Um, but in my family, everyone's really open-minded. We exchange ideas and we're always respectful. Any kind, anytime you have a respectful conversation, it benefits both parties. Wow. And once again, that's just a, just a scratch in the surface of what you can find out there. There's this whole whole shit. I mean, like, what is wrong with it's Thanksgiving? Come on. So I'm about you digest that. Let's do a music break, a little holiday music. Landy Williams. And then we'll go into the oral portions uh, as we... I won't have background music. There is no background music. It's just people... It'd be a baby crying. It's a baby... Maybe I'll find a baby crying wave. No, that's just too annoying. But um, whole articles. And these are just from last year. The new ones haven't come out. I'll probably get them next podcast because they're coming. I mean, there's stories coming of 
what you should do to your evil, evil conservative uncle. And by the way, that conservative uncle segment, that's from Bush era. That's from Air America. The majority report where Garofago and some other fucktard. But this is a huge thing on the left. They have a problem breaking bread with their family because they hate their family because they don't have their politics. And what does that say about them? So, music break. We'll discuss. Happy holiday. Happy holiday. Happy holiday. While the merry bells keep ringing. Happy holiday to you. It's the holiday season And Santa Claus is coming round The Christmas snow is white on the ground When old Santa gets into town He'll be coming down the chimney down He'll be coming down the chimney down It's the holiday season And Santa Claus has got a toy For every good girl and good little boy Santa's a great big bundle of joy When he's coming down the chimney down When he's coming down the chimney down He'll have a big fat pack upon his back And lots of goodies for you and for me So leave a peppermint stick for old St. Nick Hanging on the Christmas tree it's the holiday season, the holiday season. so hoop doo and dickery-dock. Don't forget to hang up your sock, cause just exactly at 12 o'clock, he'll be coming down the chimney down. He'll be coming down the chimney down. He'll have a big fat pack upon his back. And lots of goodies for you and for me So leave a peppermint stick for old St. Nick Hanging on a Christmas tree It's the holiday season So a hoop-dee-doo and dickery-dock Don't forget to hang up your sock Cause just exactly at 12 o'clock He'll be coming down the chimney Coming down the chimney Coming down the chimney down Happy holiday, happy holiday, happy holiday, while the merry bells keep ringing, happy holiday to you. Poking at the media bubble, one podcast at a time. Here's Tony Reed. There's a new children's book out this Christmas. Takes us inside Santa's wedding. We meet Santa's husband, David. 
We're going to talk to the author and the illustrator ahead. Still ahead, a holiday children's book tells the story of Santa Claus with a fresh new twist. There are some families, though, not so happy about the book's maybe not so hidden agenda. Yeah, they call it a political agenda. We have the author and the illustrator here with us live to talk about their new book, Santa's Husband. Well, with the Christmas holiday right around the corner, millions of people are getting really into the spirit with the thoughts of family and gifts and, of course, Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. So do us a favor here. Yeah. Victor had a very good idea. Close your eyes. Close yeah. your eyes with me and, and think of Santa and his spouse. Now open them. This is the cover of the new book. Is this the image that popped in your head? This is the cover of Santa's Husband, a new children's book that hit stores nationwide this holiday season. And joining me now, the author, uh, Daniel Kibblesmith, and illustrator Ashley Quatch. Good morning to both of you. Hi, hey, good morning. morning. So, Thanks for having us. Certainly. Thank you for coming in. This is new. Uh, Daniel, first to you. What inspired Santa's Husband? Uh, well, uh, it was sort of inspired by the uh, annual tradition we have in this country of pretending that there's a giant war on Christmas and that uh, <laughs> traditional Christmas is under attack. So, um, uh, among other things, uh, we were uh, reading all of the news about uh, the Mall of America hiring a black Santa Claus last year. And uh, me and uh, my now wife uh, made a joke on Twitter that uh, if we ever had a child, they would only know about black Santa Claus. And if they saw a white Santa Claus at the mall, we would just explain, well, that's his husband. Uh, and then uh, Ashley and I knew each other uh, from the Internet and from her illustration already. And uh, she jumped into my Twitter mentions and said, uh, boom, new book. Yeah, and, and it's out now, available uh, everywhere, actually. So let me read a couple of pages here. Uh, it says, like any married couple, they have their disagreements, but they always manage to kiss and make up, usually over a plate of milk and cookies. Yeah, remember that? That's from last year. That was CNN talking about gay Santa. We have that to look forward to. Hmm. Well, to Thanksgiving. Rachel Bade, current day. House Dems served Thanksgiving-type meal for their first caucus meeting in HC5, where the majority typically meets. No Chick-fil-A ideological food. That, that's what they put out. Everybody asks, what the fuck is ideological food? That's, that's how bad the left is. Some chick named Heather. I was today years old when I discovered Chick-fil-A as ideological food. Is there other food you deem to be ideological isn't Thanksgiving-type food problematic, though? It normalizes the pilgrims' colonization and eventual genocide of Native Americans. The party of diversity and inclusion should rethink their choice, and that's probably true. The left spends a lot of time hating on stuff. This is a traditional thing. They don't want tradition. Their whole platform is anti-tradition, anti-normal. You know, we're... Uh, Families are, it's like, oh, I watched SWAT last night, and at the end of SWAT, which has nothing to do with the plot, when they started the series, the Latino girl was kind of gay, but then somehow it evolved by the end of the first season that she was Polly Morris, or wanted to be, but she was bi, and now she's didn't want to be judged by people for joining a relationship of a man and a woman getting married and her being the sexy little accessory to their marriage. And 
the guy said, well, I think you're in for a heartache. I'm not judging you because he's a very traditional guy on the show. And long story short, they closed with her going, I'm ready for this. I'm ready for you to, to mesh in your relationship. And me and the wife looked up and just went, what the fuck's this got to do with SWAT? So instead of gay, they're going to the next level because we're next going to hear Pally Morris people, which is bigamy. And if you're a Mormon, you're a piece of shit. But if you're a sexy ass little tight butt Latina, that's cool shit, right? Is that what you're saying? Because Mormons been doing that shit for fucking ever, and that, we say that's bad. And my six wives or sister wives, the TV show is just horrible. Those fucking religious zealots with their eighty-five wives. Ah, 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 ah. So I, I was confused. But last year, GQ just said fuck it, and I think we covered it on the show. But it's worth covering again. It's your civic duty to ruin Thanksgiving by bringing up Trump. This was an article. This turkey day, consider making life hell for a few of your relatives. It's late November 2017, you know what that means. Every man you've ever seen on TV for any reason has just been unmasked as a woman-hating sewer ghoul. Also, it's time to ruin your Trump-supporting family's Thanksgiving for America. Thanksgiving is a celebration of community and gratitude where we reconvene in our nostalgic-drenched hometowns and perform time-honored traditions such as almost sleeping with your high school crush and going around the table to say what you're most thankful for and where you were on 9-11. Last year's Thanksgiving was a difficult time for most of America's roughly 65.8 million of us. The election was still a fresh wound. Trump had begun assembling Dr. Calgary cabinet of White House monsters, each one a direct fuck you to some beloved ideal. There was an EPA chief who doesn't believe in climate change. The Labor Secretary opposed minimum wage increase. The flagrantly Islamophobic National Security Advisor, who might just be a foreign agent. And at the helm of it all, a man who speaks almost exclusively in racist dog whistles and locker room talk. Thanksgiving was a cathartic vent sesh for liberals with like-minded families and a painful twist of the knife for those without. I was lucky, kind of. Both my family and my wife's family were Hillary supporters. But we spent Thanksgiving 2016 at my parents' house in Asheville, North Carolina, a city which, despite its Portlandia-esque sensibility, was nestled in deep red territory. Walking around downtown, I saw more sentient mega hats in a few hours than I had in three long post-election weeks in New York. Right away, my dad informed me that some Trump supporter friends would be joining our Thanksgiving dinner. He assured me, politely asked them not to talk politics, encouraged me to follow suit. I spent Thanksgiving dinner trying to guess which guests were the ones who voted for Trump, like the most embarrassing Agatha Christie mystery of all time. This armistice dinner went surprisingly smooth, thanks to the politics ban and enough whiskey to write out a prohibition crisis. It helped that these people were not my family. Whatever qualms I had with them outside of this holodeck simulation of a normal dinner would never come to a head since we had no reason to be in regular contact. Also, Trump had not actually taken office. Last year, Trump supporters could still make a case for impending change. Perhaps Donald was going through a molting phase, shedding his most intolerant and unstable parts like clumps of dead lizard skin. Instead of anything, his reptilian hide got doused in nuclear waste and he's since Godzilla all over America's purple mountain majesties. Anyone hoping for peace last Thanksgiving was watered with a constant chaos. Very fine Nazi marching in the streets and a flame war with North Korea unfolding entirely over Twitter, which may or may not end in Armageddon. This year... 
If you're headed home for a household that still thinks a sex-offending game show host is a rapid cognitive decline was the best choice for president, it is your civic duty to filibuster Thanksgiving. It might be different when it's their own child, who probably isn't an Antifa super soldier, and who definitely doesn't have loser genes weighing in with cold, hard facts. That's a quote they highlighted. Hmm. Trump has spent the entire year performing one long, clumsy touchdown dance to top the wreckage of America's former norms and values. He turned the presidency into haberdashery. He made nepotism a core hiring strategy. He attacked a civil rights leader during Martin Luther King Day. He politicized a Boy Scout jamboree. Any parents still riding the Trump train at this point have thereby signaled that nothing is sacred. It's time to follow their example. They can't stand idly by while President deals tramples every other American tradition, and yet somehow expects that Thanksgiving will be normal, too. If every other moment of this year is going to be drastically out of whack, nobody should get to pretend that everything is normal for one meal, just because that's what the pilgrims would have done. Here are a few suggestions on how to ruin Thanksgiving, arranged by a sending order of righteous fury. Don't show up. For some parents, your absence will speak louder than any sodden argument over the density of pumpkin pie. If you can't even look them in the eye, they'll know you mean business. Besides, Friendsgiving rules. Show up and be kind of an asshole. No hugs, only stiff, formal handshakes. During the football game, talk about police brutality nonstop. Take any opportunity to emphasize just how much Bruce Springsteen and the entire E Street band loads Trump. Come out as an aspiring professional DJ. Scorched earth. Not even a handshake. Just stare disgustingly in their outreached arms. Build a wall on a mashed potatoes. During the football game, order a 10 Papa John's pizzas, the official food stuff of alt-right, and use them as pie charts to demonstrate the benefits most from the GOP tax plan. Refuse to be alone in a room with your mom, citing the Mike Pence rule. Call your parents by a Donald Trump nickname of your choice, perhaps Little Rocket Mom or Little Dad. Instead, Insist on setting a place for Robert Mueller the way Jews do with Elijah on Passover. Wear a coal miner's hat for solidarity. Punch a cornucopia right in the mouth. Of course, this is about more than just spite, as satisfying as spite can be in these times. This is about potentially chipping away at the 35% of unbudging Trump supporters. Sorry for you, a year later it's higher. Sure, some of them are fully on board with every inexplicable decision, but others may be swayable. They are Fox News devotees who have simply internalized the message that all negative news about Trump is fake news. They know the president's unpopular, but they think it's unpopular in the strict province of haters and losers. It might be different when it's their own child, who probably isn't an Antifa super soldier, who definitely doesn't have loser genes. You do have loser genes. Whoever wrote this does. Weighing in with cold hard facts. Having a son or daughter low with everything you become is easier long distance. It's another thing when the kid is staring turkey carving daggers at you from across the table. If your family is unmoved after a ruined Thanksgiving, though, that's fine too. After all, next year's Thanksgiving falls just after the midterms. And if you're a true believer, parents still feel the way they do. You might ruin their holiday in another way. This is liberalism 101. Um, Don't agree with me. You're a piece of shit. And I can honestly say from experience, um, there was a Thanksgiving here. My daughter was staying with me. It was pre-election. And I said something about the TV and she blew up on me. And I did the usual father with this is my fucking house concept. But I found during all the times that my daughter 
went off on us because of our politics, it actually made me dig in more. It actually didn't make me change out of spite back to them that they would feel that they had the right to tell me what to think when I'm just having conversations or making statements about a TV. Um, it it didn't change my mind. It, it, it actually made it harder. And I think it's to the core of what liberals are. Your parents are stupid fucks. That has been drilled into them forever by the liberal establishment because for you to give up norms that you know like God and family and normalcy, you have to hate your family. But I think the core problem with all of this is why the midterms didn't go the way they wanted it. While the Senate increased seats for Republicans, because people know that the Senate's where things happen, I think the left is pushing people away from their cause. I mean, if your answer to everything is to hate the people that don't think like you, that's pretty un-American. I mean, it really is highly un-American. And not what we do as a society. We have been taught, and partially by liberals, if you think about it, that you have to tolerate other people's views. Their whole cause is about the minority and small groups and now polymorous people need to have respect and be treated with dignity. But the moment you lose an election, you treat everybody else with lack of tolerance. It's the most hypocritical thing I've ever seen. Um, but it's it's the left. It's just who they are. This one came from um, HuffPo, the Liberal's Guide for Surviving Thanksgiving 2016. This Thanksgiving promises to perhaps the most politically divisive in American history. In dining rooms across the country, lifelong relationships will be tested. Family members will struggle to control their tempers. The feet of innumerable in-laws will be kicked. Countless meals will descend into awkward silence, tension aggregated by clinking of silverware on porcelain. Huh. Pretty interesting. I'm, I don't think that actually happened. It is a dread feel, felt, especially by liberals and progressives, with post-election family feelings still raw. Many of us are considering skipping family gatherings for the first time in our years. Others plan to attend but avoid political talk at all costs. While understandable is essential to resist these instincts, you must attend Thanksgiving. You must engage in political conversations, especially if your family is divided politically. Why? For at least two reasons. First, because now more than ever, we must rescue a sense of common humanity across political lines. Second, because we must begin to build a successful resistance to Trump's regime immediately. That's the beginning of it. Your Thanksgiving table should be viewed not as a civil war battlefield, but instead as a revolutionary cell. Communication respect. Perhaps the biggest propellant of polarizations are the deep feelings of partisan animosity felt on both sides, the left and right. A profound distrust pervades our political discourse. Many conservatives assume that liberals view conservatives as unsophisticated bigots and presumption that clearly impedes our effort to persuade. To counter this, you can start by simply listening 
Try to better understand your family member's perspective. Seek out points of common ground. Perhaps advance a criticism of some aspects of your own side. Do not call your cousin a crypto-fascist. Use moral reframing. But we should not only seek understanding and respect, we should also begin to make progress. One effective technique is moral reframing. As I explained in recent TEDx talk, this involves explaining how your political position is consistent with the values of the person you're trying to persuade. My colleague, my colleague Matthew Feinberg, and I felt that the method can be effective in persuading conservatives to take more liberal positions on same-sex marriage, national health insurance, environmental protection, and Donald Trump. If you're a liberal talking to a conservative, this involves looking for ways that your position fits with values like group loyalty, patriotism, respect for authority, moral purity, and religious sanctity. Stop. Okay, let's just break that down. Since 2016 started, loyalty. Loyalty to what? To your political beliefs, if that, get the fuck off the bus is how you act. Patriotism. You hate America. You hate the flag. You hate soldiers. Respect for authority. You hate the police. You want ICE disbanded. Moral purity. You believe I can fuck a goat, marry a goat, and become a goat. And religious sanctity. There is not a show that I don't talk about them bashing Christians. End of rant. Speak to interest. Harness Empathy, visualize success, begin with moderate goals, and basically end up brainwashing your family. Other article from last year, how Donald Trump ruined Thanksgiving. A new study finds after last year's scorched earth presidential campaign, Americans could barely stand to look at each other in the eye. This is Politico 2016. Yeah. His scorched earth? Really? Then I found on the the wrap, seven movies guaranteed to ruin Thanksgiving for Trump fans and your family. If you'd rather stick to the Trump supporters of your family than make peace, throw on any of these movies. The holidays are known for being volatile, especially for those upset that Donald Trump is still in the White House. You don't, however, have to let your Fox News-loving relatives dictate terms of engagement. Wielding the power of liberal cinema, you can start the argument party in a whole new way. Now, you know, it's very funny that ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, PBS, all the print, all the websites, they always bash Fox News. Jesus freaking Christ on a popsicle stick. You people own the media. There is not a network that doesn't spend all day pushing liberal causes and little old Fox News just gets in your burr in your saddle. They even joined your Acosta suing. Yet you still bash it. Every article. It's it's like the boogeyman for them. So here are their movies. South Side with You. When someone inevitably whines about the very existence of a romantic drama about a young Barack and Michelle, just remind them that they voted for the apprentice guy before sushing them. Inglorious Bastards. This one is more subtle selection. At first, it's sort of bait and switch and requires some pithiness from you. As your Trump-loving uncle delights in the graphic destruction of the evil Nazis, make a quip about holy totally weird it is that neo-Nazis today really seem to love the guy. Selma. An inconvenient truth. Brokeback Mountain. 
as a native of Alabama, I would say this is probably the one that would draw the strongest reaction because everybody knows what kind of movie it is and will immediately understand what you're trying to do. But it's so good that even your cousins yelling ooh throughout can't ruin it. Good night and good luck. Trump supporters love to hate the media for being biased liars, so it would definitely be chuckle-worthy to throw on a movie about a renowned broadcast journalist, Edward R. Murrow, sticking into demagogue Republican senators and communist witch hunter Joe McCarthy. Ghosts can't do it. It's a really, really bad sex comedy featuring Donald Trump as himself. He won a Razzie, worst supporting actor. Hmm. Yeah. The right has gotten on it, too. Your Trump-era Thanksgiving guide to conservative arguments for your liberal relatives was an article I did find. And it's like the left. But the one I love is from last year. This is what it's like to be the only Trump fan at Thanksgiving dinner. Even with the crazy uncle jokes, here's what it's like to be the black sheep at the table by Mark Berlin. It was printed in Politico last year. Surprised me. And it goes a little something like this. In my household, when the holidays come, the usual family members plus a friend or two gather. We have three generations at the table, two female 80-year-olds, some 50-year-olds, and the millennials. Only one of us is a Trump supporter. This is, after all, a family professionals in the northeastern coastal city. But it takes only one Trumper to turn a genial dinner into an emotional contest of wills. It doesn't matter that the holiday call for love and gratitude. We may try to talk about other things, our lives, our jobs, the weather... But Trump won't go unmentioned. The feelings he arouses are too stormy. This week, we should expect lots of politics along with turkey and stuffing. Last year at Thanksgiving, two weeks before the big surprise, it wasn't so bad. Hillary Clinton supporters were still in shock. President Barack Obama had two months to go. Some on the left believed that surely something would emerge between then and the inauguration that would keep the unthinkable from happening. And there were outlets for liberal dismay and fear, too. Marches to join, websites in which to vent. I stepped out to Manhattan 2nd Avenue around the time and watched a small parade heading north, I presume, to one of Trump's east side towers. They were softly singing, We shall overcome. The mood at 2016 holiday table then was a disbelief, not outrage. A year later, though, he's still here. Roe is in trouble, and so are trans soldiers, and public schools, and the environment, and white supremacists are emboldened. I'm the inexplicable presence in the room, a specimen of something that shouldn't be. How in the world can an educated person, a teacher, for goodness sake, back such a stupid, bigoted, alpha male blowhard? That's the question that won't go away. My mother will talk about his macho manner. My sisters will recount the latest fumbles by his cabinet. My nephew and his wife will fret over what he'll do to science. Everything runs smoothly until I say, didn't you love Trump's speech in Warsaw? Isn't it great to have a leader willing to praise Western civilization? That does it. The communal spell is broken. I've ruined Thanksgiving. Forget the Warsaw speech. It's the bare fact of dissent that counts. My mother will wrinkle her brow and mutter, Oh God, the millennials at the table go blank. Western civilization has dropped as a school subject before they were born. My sister shall return to Trump pulling back on environmental regulations, which she regards as abominable. I imagine similar scenes at holiday tables across the country. According to a recent Reuters ISA poll released earlier this month, only a third of American adults will try to avoid political topics during the holidays this year. My wife is just one window in 
to understanding why. Any career woman, especially a single one, who entered the workforce in 70 is never, ever going to look at Donald Trump as anything but a sexist bully. She remembers too many ill-mannered bosses and co-workers condescending males who, when they didn't hit on her, dismissed her or exploited her. My mother made a go of it and put up with a lot. Those humiliations don't fade. This is not something to dispute. I spent last New Year's Eve at a fa- faculty party in Massachusetts where a woman who, had, who was about 70 described that fateful morning when she woke up to find that Hillary had lost. It is important that she and Hillary are the same age here, for once was a candidate who knew what it was like to be an ambitious young woman in the 70s. Astonishment led to disappointment and then to fright. Her horror reminds me of Yeats' line, and what rough beast it's our hour come round at last. But she told us, she sauntered down to the beach, sat on the sand, marked the sea and sky and mumbled, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. Clearly a reaction to Genesis started long before 2016. I never once showed my political sympathies during that particular dinner. The young ones at the holiday table have a different experience, but it's no less foreign to me. You see, a 25-year-old has no real memory of any president except Barack Obama. George W. Bush is just a name. They cast their first votes for Obama, and second, millennials tend to skip the midterms. Obama was not a politician to them. He was a realization of everything millennials believe about the world and about themselves. They are the first generation to have brought tolerance and inclusion down on earth, they tell you. They will not stand for racism. Patriotism is a minor concern because they think it's wrong for favor the poor farmer upstate over the poor farmer in Africa. Everyone deserves to be happy. Barack Obama in the White House was a vindication of their faith. In 2008, the youth vote, 18 to 29, favored him over McCain, 66% to 31. This was a hero worship. The first black president, a guy who listens to rap and shoots hoops like madmen and knows how to deliver a punchline, who stops discrimination and frustrations, haters, who frees and harass, victimized. This was what American leadership should always be. Donald Trump can impress them only as a throwback, a mean activist clod. They don't care for Hillary especially. It's the loss of Obama that distresses them. Set the orange-haired tweeter alongside the cool, composed law professor and mighty void hits home. The millennials had a charmed political youth for eight years. Now as they see it, they enter their 30s with a guy who likes walls, guns, and threats. To my fellow Trump supporters, a word of advice. Think about the experience that lie behind the rancor you might face as you dine and relax with your loved ones this season. Arguments will not end well. Everyone has a life story and wellspring of pain and triumph that won't yield easily to debate. Trump has violated them too deeply. But you have a life story too, and one that led you towards Trump, not away from him. When I first saw identity politics at work, I graduated student in English at UCLA in the 80s. There were... These were the years when the heritage of genus and beauty was recast as a bunch of dead white males, Western civilization, slipped from a lineage and reason and talent, free inquiry and unsuppressed creativity and Eurocentrism. 
One group advanced at the expense of the other, women and people of color. Art for sake of sake gave way to art for political sake, for identity's sake. I spent my 20s in the grimy room reading Dante, Wadsworth, and Nietzsche, only to find when I went to campus that my intellectual giants had become objects of suspicion and derision. When Donald Trump stood in that square in Warsaw and unapologetically hailed Western civilization, I felt a 30-year discouragement lift ever so slightly. That's my experience, and I'm happy to share this season. But I want to hear about the personal circumstances behind my relatives' politics, too. I can ask the younger ones next to me, what did Obama 2008 campaign mean to you? And we don't need to fight about it. I can say to my mother, what was it like to be the first female real estate agent in the company? And avoid the disagreements of the present entirely. These questions are not an avoidance of politics. They put the foundations of politics. And if conversations run into deeper directions instead of today's controversies, then this year's gatherings may in fact prove more meaningful and intimate than ever. So talk about Trump all you want at your Thanksgiving dinner. Just be sure to listen to what your crazy uncle, father-in-law, niece, cousin is really saying. I disagree with that article 100%, but I read it because it was surprisingly printed in Politico. I am for the other side of the conversation. At your Thanksgiving table, you shouldn't talk about politics. You should talk about your family. At my table, all the years, we said a prayer, even though both my kids are atheists. And then we went around and said what we're thankful for this year. A lot of families do that. And then we just talked to each other. Didn't talk about politics, elections, the weather. We just talked. If I was a seriously super political person, I would say to you, I don't need to listen to the left. The left is a bunch of irrational child, children. They're just petulant children. We hear them all the time. That's why this election was the silent majority and we don't listen to people in rural states and then they went away from listening to people in rural states. We know what the liberals think. We can't not know what they think. They exasperate everything. But it's 2018. Gays are still gay. Gay marriage is still a thing. Roe v. Wade hasn't gone anywhere. Transgenders were never being beaten in the streets. And blacks are not in chains, Joe Biden. Nothing's changed. For them to win, they have to fearmonger, and they fearmonger with these same causes that they have talked about since I was born in the 60s. I do not remember a campaign that we did not talk about some stupid right that was already given. I mean, Obama sauntered off into history for the Lilly Ledbetter Act, which we already had a bunch of other acts that it was illegal to pay women less. It's a red herring. And if they're not doing this, they're doing this. 
College Library, Thanksgiving, a National Day of Mourning. A Massachusetts College Library shared an article about decolonizing Thanksgiving using the hashtag, hashtag National Day of Mourning. In the article, St. Mary's University professor shares resources including letter template parents can send to their kids' schools if they do not like the Thanksgiving curriculum. It promoted an article entitled Decolonize Thanksgiving, a toolkit for combating racism in schools. Stereotypical and racist portrayals of Native people fill U.S. elementary schools each November. The toolkit, created by St. Mary's University professor Lindsay Passenger Week, urges an approach that decolonizes and de-romanticizes Thanksgiving. Here are some wonderful resources for teaching children about Thanksgiving, Merrimack said, posting the Week's article. This is great for educators and parents. Stereotypical and racist portrayals of Native people will fill U.S. elementary schools each November as students encounter historically inaccurate portrayals of Native people in arts and crafts, books and lessons about shared Thanksgiving meals and songs and plays with handcrafted headdresses and vests but these activities are problematic because they depict native people in an ahistorical historical way and perpetuate myths and colonial encounters the article provides readers with nearly 30 links to letter templates that can send to their children's school about inappropriate thanksgiving activities as well as the names of books teachers can use to decolonize the holiday one such parent to teacher letter addresses parental concern for native american teepee art indian style crafts are you fucking shitting me seriously are you fucking shitting me? What the fuck? Why do you have to take a shit on everything? On fucking everything. So now, don't listen to your crazy liberals. Don't talk politics. And if they bring politics up, tell them to get the fuck up from the table, go sit by the TV and eat. You're no longer welcome here. If they try to throw gay movies on, it's your fucking TV. If they start talking about cops during the football game, go the fuck outside. Go. Leave. Kick them out of your house. No. Thanksgiving is a day of family. It's not about politics. It's not about bitching about stupid causes that don't need to be talked about. And it sure isn't about decolonizing Thanksgiving. For fuck's sake. Let's go into another music break and news and social media nuggets where we will do a long military corner about military jerky day. I've got plenty to be thankful for I haven't got great big yacht To sail from shore to shore Still I've got plenty to be thankful for I've got plenty to be thankful for No private car, no caviar No carpet on my floor Still I've got plenty to be thankful for I've got eyes to see with Ears to hear with 
Arms to hug with, lips to kiss with someone to adore. How could anybody ask for more? My needs are small. I buy 'em all at the five and ten cent store. Oh, I've got plenty to be thankful for. Got eyes to see with, ears to hear with, arms to hug with, lips to kiss with, someone to adore. How could anybody ask for more? My needs are small, buy 'em all, five and ten cent store. Oh, I've got. Plenty to be thankful It's time for news and social media nuggets. The crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind. It's a whole new ball game on campus these days, and they call it PC. PC? Politically correct, and it's not just politics. It's everything. It's what you eat. It's what you wear, and it's what you say. If you don't watch yourself, you can get in a buttload of trouble. For instance, right see two. these girls? Yeah. No, you don't. Those are women. You call them girls, and they'll pop your figs. Save the whales! Gay's in the military now! Three notes of the Don't hear no sound, let's hear what we did this. Off we go into the wild blue yonder, finding home. 
and be all you can be for it's an adventure for the few, the proud, the brave in military corner. It's a great reminder of all we have to be thankful of, even here, even now, even in Afghanistan amidst conflict. As you look around, the family and friends you have here, it's a reminder that we all have things to be thankful for. Uh, it, it's good to be here with my colleagues. I have a great work environment. It is sad to be away from family, uh, missing my one-year-old learning how to walk. Um, but overall, uh, it, it, it's as good as it gets. From home during Thanksgiving. Well, uh, it's, it's fairly tough, you know, but uh, we do have responsibilities and we do have our, you know, share of duty to perform here. So. You know, as uh, difficult as this, you know, being away from family, we try to uh, enjoy it as much as possible with the family we have here on base. So, um, you know, it's bittersweet. Yes, sir. It hurts a little bit. You miss your family, but you also have an Army community and family, and it feels good to be here with uh, my co-workers and celebrate and help ease some of that pain of not being with their loved ones. So it all works out, and it's great. How do you like the food? Oh, the food is amazing. They, they did an outstanding job this year, and I look forward to the different spreads that they put out. It's difficult to be away from home, you know? I really miss my friends and my family and my community, but, you know, being over here, it reminds me of how grateful I am to be an American and all of the things that our military does to protect us and to defend our freedoms and our rights. So I'm really thankful to be here with my military family, too. How do you like the food? The food is delicious, you know. They went all out this year. They really did. They had turkey, ham, shrimp, cocktail, lobster. No, not lobster. Crab, uh, cranberry sauce, which I'm about to take back to my table now, dressing, just anything you could ask for. This is wonderful. So even though I can't be with family, I would say this is the next best thing for sure. Great. Well, I think, you know, everyone is used to the sacrifice of being deployed during Thanksgiving, but certainly... Uh, what is, is valuable uh, to not just the U.S. forces deployed here, but the coalition as well, that we take the time out uh, and really focus on, on people. Thanksgiving's not about gifts. Thanksgiving is not about uh, necessarily uh, tradition. It's about people. It's about sitting down with those that you care about, and it's really uh, a special opportunity for us all that have our families back home, that we can sit down and share this time with our families while we're deployed. Have you enjoyed the food? It's fantastic. Great, thank you. Very okay, much. thank you. Thank you, sir. Have a nice day.
how we do it. Military Thanksgiving is a pretty big deal. I'm going to go through a few things. I'll go through some memories. But seven things you probably never knew about Thanksgiving and the military. One, the first nationally recognized Thanksgiving wasn't observed by the military. Blame sources. In October 1863, Abraham Lincoln was the first president to proclaim National Thanksgiving with the Civil War in full swing, but the Army commissary didn't have the necessary food, both in type and quantity, to provide a full Thanksgiving meal for troops. Two, Abraham Lincoln is kind of responsible for Black Friday. Lincoln's 1863 stipulated that his proclamation in 1863 stipulated that American people set apart and observed the last Thursday of November next as a day of Thanksgiving. This means as a nation, we're permanently blessed with Friday following Thanksgiving Day. Leave it to us to pair extra days with more excuses for capitalism. Yeah, we don't need excuses. Three, add Spain to your list of Thanksgiving blessings. The Spanish-American War was the first overseas war fought by the United States. Transporting food was extraordinarily difficult, with many nations spoiling before many rations, sorry, spoiling before reaching the destination, but American ingenuity prevailed by 1905 with the establishment of a cooking school at Fort Riley, which made future military Thanksgivings possible. Four, Americans were guilt-tripped into rationing. During World War I, rations for doughboys was greatly improved. A greater and fresher array of food was made available, even to troops serving at front lines. Camps provided a hot turkey dinner for their service members. Despite this, citizens at home were instructed by the government to eat less wheat, meat, fat, sugars, send more to Europe, or they will starve. Five, Nazis couldn't stop Thanksgiving. World War II presented a huge, intricate logistic challenge in supplying our troops with food. During this time, soldiers subsisted largely on canned goods, dried fruit, and powdered eggs. But for Thanksgiving, the supply chain went to extraordinary lengths, transporting 1.6 tons of turkeys to ensure troops ate a traditional hot dinner. Vietnam incepted the MRE. By the time Vietnam War rolled around, advances in food preservation and transportation made it possible for a majority of soldiers to eat two hot meals per day. To serve the traditional Thanksgiving meals, soldiers were rotated off the front line. The amount of food being prepared necessitated standardized guidelines, which gave birth to the Army Forces Recipe Service in 68, which meant we get Chili Mac. <laughs> and four branches means four different things. Thanksgiving meals. The present-day Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps created individual Thanksgiving menus for their forces, but the recipes are centralized by the U.S. Army Natick Soldiers System Center, a.k.a. Um, USCC, 
food technologists have created 1,500 standardized recipes, including one for traditional Thanksgiving dinner. Roast turkey can be found under L160100. This means that our deployed troops will enjoy a dinner like they would at home with I-01300, a.k.a. pumpkin pie included. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty freaking pretty cool, actually, if you think about it. Um, uh, let's get to this other one. I got a long arm. What it takes to get food to deploy Thanksgiving. Service members are deployed overseas at Thanksgiving miss out on the precious family time that comes with holidays, so the Defense Department does its best to try at least to bring them a piece of home for Thanksgiving, but it's not an easy task. In case you thought cooking a 15-pound turkey for your family was a lot, try cooking for tens of thousands of hungry troops who are looking forward to a taste of home. This year, and this came from 2015, the Defense Logistic Agency said it shipped out the following quantities, 34,760 pounds of turkey, 32,550 pounds of beef, 21,450 pounds of ham, 879 gallons of eggnog, 9,114 pounds of stuffing mix. In case your brain can't quantify that, those things are the equivalent of the following items. 16 adult hippos, 15 smart cars, 25 male zebras, 47 kegs of beer, and 334 gold bars. Wow. I have to admit, my Thanksgivings overseas are really good uh, memories. Um, I remember... A Thanksgiving in 1990 uh, on the DMZ was when we still toured um, between the two Norths and South Korea, and we did patrols. And eating my Thanksgiving dinner in the rain, there was a little mess hall, but it was so crowded, I went outside and ate it really quick and went back to my tent. And my wife had sent me a one-foot Christmas tree to set up, because that's her tradition. And I went to set it up in my little gp medium tent each squad had their own tent and i had a black and white tv with an antenna that i had taken some um comma wire and strung it out like 200 meters to get a signal and that's when they announced we were being extended uh gulf war was going on and we weren't going home and i was supposed to leave the following month to go back to the states and i was just crushed then I remember my next one was Korea also in 2000. And I was a Pathfinder, so we had all these dignitaries coming in. I was an instructor at the PLDC in, in uh, Fort Jackson, or Camp Jackson, excuse me. Camp Jackson and Weejambu. And I was running the LZ, so everybody already ate. The students had eaten. And I went in and ate with the Korean workers watching um, a Korean music bank uh, TV show. And I had my turkey dinner with them, and I thought it was pretty cool. It's it's a fond memory. I don't know why I just do, but when you're deployed, it sucks. Um, Christmas, Thanksgiving, it, it's not cool. It, it's horrible. Um, I luckily, both Thanksgivings when I was in Fort Irwin, living away from the family, I went one home and one back here, and both my Christmases, I I went home. I was with the family, so, uh, you know, I got pretty lucky. 20 years in a war zone. I, I didn't have to do but two away from the family. Um, two Christmases and two Thanksgivings. But um, in the end, they have their fond memories, too. So, to our military corner, 
with some really disturbing news. I got him with my hunting knife. Seal allegedly texted photo cradling ISIS fighter's head. Navy SEAL Chief Edwards Eddie Gallagher allegedly texted a photo of himself creating a dead ISIS fighter's head in one hand while holding a knife in the other and boasted that he got him with his hunting knife, Navy prosecutor said Wednesday. In an Article 32 hearing before Navy Judge Advocate Captain Arthur Record, prosecutors introduced a large binder of eyewitness statements, video interviews, photographs, and text messages to establish Gallagher's case should be referred to court-martial. And it was. A 19-year veteran of the Navy had been charged with four counts of violating military law, the most serious of which is premeditated murder. On or about May 3, 2017, according to the charge sheet, Gallagher allegedly murdered a wounded ISIS fighter by stabbing him in the neck and body with a knife. Navy NCIS, actual guys, Joe Warbiner was the only witness called by the government. Warbinski, who had been investigating the case since April, told the hearing officer had taken a sworn testimony of nine different people from Gallagher SEAL Team 7 <clears throat> Alpha Platoon. According to Warbinski, Platoon was operating in Mosul alongside the Iraqi Emergency Response Division when the alleged murder occurred. The Iraqi called an airstrike on the building and then a subsequent captured a wounded ISIS fighter who was 15 years old. After the fighter was taken prisoner and briefly interviewed by an Iraqi journalist, there's a print screen of it, he was turned over to the SEALs of the compound and medics began treating him, including Gallagher. Gallagher briefly left as the SEALs began to help with medical treatment of the fighter who was having trouble breathing. But one of the SEALs, medics, Witness were reduced to initials, his name was C.S., to shield them from potentially being placed on a so-called ISIS kill list, told NCIS he believed he had just stabilized the fighter before Gallagher walked up without saying anything at all and started stabbing him. C.S. told investigators it left him complete disbelief. Afterward, according to the charge, Gallagher posed next to the body and took pictures in addition to carrying out his reenlistment ceremony with the corpse. In total, there were three eyewitnesses to the alleged murder. Other on the team are attached to it, commented on other aspects of NCIS, according to Warminger, who said the EOD chief, M.M., couldn't believe what had happened to the wounded man, adding this was just a brainwashed kid. An Air Force combat controller with SEALs found it inappropriate and disrespectful to take photos of the body and conduct a re-enlistment. The photos, which were introduced under SEAL and not shown during the hearing, were discovered in search of Gallagher's personal cell phone. Warminger described the three photos taken of Gallagher's phone during the hearing. In one, the chief held up the fighter's dead head, still attached to the body with one hand while holding the knife in the other. The second showed a similar pose, but zoomed out with two other seals in the background. The third showed Gallagher holding the fighter's head by his hair, with Warminger said was apparently right after the reenlistment ceremony. During cross-examination, Gallagher's civilian defense attorney, Philip Stackhouse, seemed to imply that the other SEALs had engaged in similar behavior and posed with bodies. Did you ask whether any person took a picture with the ISIS fighter that day? He asked Wabinger, said no. Stackhouse also asked why NCIS did not seize the entire SEAL platoon's phone devices. You took them at their word? Stackhouse asked Wabinger. It seems like all their statements were consistent and true. I'm not going to read anymore. Um, you know, I remember I was, uh, working for Cav. I hired this guy. He was an 
E7, Ranger. Good dude. Don't remember his name. We were at SHOT Show drinking on the roof, smoking a stogie and drinking whiskey. And this guy was with Third ID and he had talked about how his guys took pictures and all that shit. And I said, oh, that's fucked up. And he goes, what do you mean? Everybody's got to get their pictures. I go, no, they don't. My platoon never did. Everybody in the room got quiet. I just said, I think it's fucked up. You don't need pictures of that shit. You got memories. I banned that crap. And when he left, everybody in the room, ex-vets, was like, you were right. We didn't do shit like that. Only incident that ever came bad was an ISIS fighter, or back then it was an Al-Qaeda fighter, I guess. What's the fucking difference nowadays? Um, had a hole in his head, got brought up by a bunch of dickheads from 1st Battalion Rock Sons. They threw him on the ground. <clears throat> he was strapped to the front of a gator. And I, I don't like these guys. I mean, they're pieces of shit. You know, I, it's not like I'm a Nancy boy. But... We get taught the 5W, you're supposed to protect him, and this guy was no harm to anybody. He's got brain matter coming out of his head, and they just threw him on the front basket of a gator. So when they threw him on the ground, I go, get the fuck out of here. And a couple of my guys, won't name them, said we should just kill this fucker, and I made him watch him all night. They had to take care of him. And by the time he left and went on the Blackbird and probably went to Gitmo or died, I don't know what happened, they thanked me. Because that's not what we do. Just in that battle, they chopped the seal's dick and balls off and shoved it in his mouth. Executed him. We knew that later. But I mean, that's what they do. We don't do that. So this guy clearly broke had a mental breakdown because that's just some fucked up shit. The saga of the homeless vet. 400,000 GoFundMe may have been one giant hoax. A couple conspired with a homeless man on a story about him offering the last of his money when the woman's car ran out of gas and then set up a fraudulent GoFundMe account to scam sympathizers and ran away with the money. $400,000 in donations are gone. Special place in hell. For these people. Dear media, a veteran with PTSD isn't more likely to be a mass shooter. Days after 28-year-old ex-Marine shot killed 12 people at a bar, President Trump drew an uneasy connection between post-traumatic stress disorder and violence among veterans. But Trump's comments don't capture the reality of the relationship between the veterans and gun violence. In fact, a veteran is more likely to use firearm to harm themselves than others. And then the rest of this article goes into... Suicide, but this is task and purpose, a liberal thing, and let's just break it down. If you're going to bash Trump for saying that, you, you forget that Obama administration made us domestic terrorists. There is a connection between PTSD and violence. This article's full of shit. There are guys that have, there's a guy on Fort Campbell, special forces guy, came back and killed his wife with a toilet seat cover. But we're no likely to commit mass murder than anybody else. And most of the time, it is suicide. But for this article, and that's why I covered it, to go all fucking libtard because Trump said it. Obama's administration treated vets like shit. Trump is no better, but he can't be no more worse. Um... 
So I, I had to fucking blow up on that shit. That just fucking pisses me off. Um, the Army has adopted the pink and greens. They'll be wearing World War II greens. And if I was an old, fat, and broke, I'd sign back up. 2020 is when first units will get it, but it'll be in a 28 by 2028. 13 funny military memes. I love this one. Because remember, Antifa was lauded with D-Day landing pictures. And somebody took that picture and said, everybody wants to be patriotic until it's time to do patriotic shit. Ain't that the truth? Military doctor. Are you allergic to anything? Patient. Ibuprofen. And it shows doctors in a moment of grief. Because <laughs> that's all they do. Staff sergeant is checking rooms for Marines. He won't find me here. And it shows a Marine literally up hiding in the roof from a sergeant. And I'm got to be quite honest there's one time as a private private tony reed jumped out of a second story window in the barracks in alaska with no money because there were randomly grabbing people making them going out and do land nav course then enough people to sign up for the weekend voluntary land nav so they were going to volunteer people and it was fucking winter and i had no jacket or anything and i went to the fucking px and hid for a couple hours so yeah i did it uh, last one, when other branches complain about Air Force per diem, better defect and living conditions, it shows uh, that 101 Dalmatians lady, ha, you really should have thought about that before you became peasants. And that's so fucking true because the Air Force, it, it isn't right. I guess I had more. It's an Air Force thing, aim high. A row of latrine uh, urinals and there's a urinal up on the roof. I don't, don't know why it's there, but it's there. CEO Golden Corral looking at the loss report after Veterans Day. 50 billion fucking dollars. Because it's probably true. I thought about going. And then this one. At this point, I can't tell if my headache is from too much caffeine or not enough. And it shows an Osprey that crashed. And a dude's got to rip it and he's taking a picture by it. And it reminded me of a time in uh, Afghanistan when a fucking... Um, Blackhawk crashed. Almost landed on our people. But they were on guard, thank God. <clears throat> and we, one of the SF guys put a $100 for sale. And he said, watch, they're going to come up and try to buy it. And people did. The Afghanis did. But we all took pictures by that helicopter. That's eh, kind of something we do. Our last little snippet is uh, CSM Scott Schroeder. Now, Scott Schroeder, because I can say his name, it's public record now, he was my first sergeant in Afghanistan. We were good friends until he got really high up on the food chain. Then he forgot about little old me. Um, bitter. Did that sound bitter? It was. Um, he wrote a book and a uh, little story, Rediscovering the Role of NCO. People who have worked with Sergeant Major Schroeder know he's in a soldier's soldiers. His 34 years in the Army span from his Germany days as an electronic mechanic to command Sergeant Major the U.S. Army Forces Command, a four-star level command of over 750,000 active duty guard and reserve components. In this chat, CSM Schroeder shares a story from beginning of his career where he survived UCMJ, then re-enlisted to become an infantryman. Through varying leadership positions of multiple echelons, CSM Schroeder grew into the iconic NCO leader that the Army is designed to grow. He fought in everything, and I called him Skeletor because that motherfucker was the most in-shape. I only met one other guy, Sean Watson. He was SAR Major. He's retired now. He's the Sean Watson from Black Hawk Down. 
that was more in shape. I mean, we do like a four mile ruck to run or run to ruck. And when we get done and I'd be like smoked because I was a fat, chunky guy at the end and started having injuries and just wasn't as good shape from the last six years of my military career, <clears throat> Watson and Schroeder would get a ruck and go do some more because it wasn't enough. And as stated before on the military, like episode 16 of this podcast, oh, so long ago, he was the only one running in the mountains. That dude was in shape. So here's a quick interview with him that will close on our military corner and we'll go into college crazy. I only need a sergeant really to do three things. If I could have a sergeant that, that can just do three things, uh, I would like those three things to be lead by personal example, inspect, and train, and then just master those three things. If we could have all of our sergeants and corporals just lead, inspect, and train, all of our units would be much stronger. Hello, fellow leaders, and welcome to another episode of the Military Leader Podcast, bringing you conversations with today's most successful leaders. I am Andrew Stedman, back from a few weeks off in Glacier National Park with the family. You have got to check that place out and put it on your bucket list. It is beautiful out there with tons to do. Make your way up to Montana sometime and visit Glacier. I'm glad to be back with you and hope you enjoyed the last three bonus episodes on luck and how it influences the trajectory of your career. I appreciate Steve Leonard and Nate Finney for contributing their guest posts on the site and for adding to the conversation on the fickle nature of luck, timing, networks, and opportunities in the military. You can find those guest posts, this episode, and many, many other posts on leadership, leader development, and productivity, so many other topics there too, all at themilitaryleader.com. Check out the posts, resources, insight, and then connect on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and join the conversation that's happening every day on leadership. I got to tell you, I am humbled by all the people who have left ratings and reviews on iTunes. Over 73 of you have left five-star ratings and about a dozen have left positive reviews, which I truly appreciate. I'm so glad the podcast hits home for you and provides value. If you haven't left a rating on iTunes, I invite you to do so if the show is helping you grow as a leader. This week, I am honored to share my conversation with retired Command Sergeant Major Scott Schroeder. People who have worked with Command Sergeant Major Schroeder know that he is a soldier's soldier. His 34 years in the Army span from his Germany days to his impact as the Command Sergeant Major of U.S. Army Forces Command, a four-star command of over 750,000 active duty, guard, and reserve component soldiers. In this chat, Command Sergeant Major Schroeder shares the story from the beginning of his career, where he survived UCMJ and then re-enlisted to become an infantryman. Through varying leadership positions and multiple echelons, Command Sergeant Major Schroeder grew into the iconic NCO leader that the Army is designed to grow. He is a humble leader who always respected the authority of his commander, but wasn't afraid to offer advice, challenge assumptions, and mentor officers at every level. He is passionate about reclaiming the role of the NCO and advises that NCOs should leverage the authority and responsibility inherent in their rank. Though he retired last year, his transition to civilian life hasn't stopped him from influencing the Army. He stays tightly connected to his Army network and is putting to paper his well-developed thoughts on the Army leadership, 
which will likely find their way to bookshelves before too long. Regardless of whether you are an officer or an NCO, infantryman or cook, Command Sergeant Major Schroeder's insight will make you a better leader. I'm so thankful he took the time to have this chat for the military leader audience, and I'm proud to bring you my conversation with Command Sergeant Major Scott Schroeder. Command Sergeant Major Schroeder, good morning, and how are you? I'm doing great, um, and, and thanks for asking me to uh, participate. It's, uh, it, it, it's an honor. Thanks, Sergeant Major. Uh, I, I'm excited to chat with you. I know the audience will be, too. And so I want to throw a question out, out to you to start with. Um, I'd like to ask you about a, a crucible moment, a significant moment in your career that shaped you into who you are today. Uh, well, there's, there's, I don't know if there's a single moment in my career that, that shaped me. I, I think it's m- moments, of, uh, things that happen uh, across my career. That shaped me, but uh, I, I can I can think of a couple uh, right off that are like polar polar opposites and may surprise some people. Um, you know, early early in my career, I was uh, I was an electronics mechanic uh, serving in Germany, and um, right when it was about time for me to be, I was in my reenlistment window, and I was facing the commander for UCMJ. And, and, uh, I, I had gotten, uh, I, I lived in, we were in a remote site. So to be able to get any vehicles registered, we had to travel a couple hours. And so, um, I was taking the trash out one day and in the dumpster, I saw, um, there were some license plates in there. And so, um, I had an idea and I said, well, I could save a lot of time if I just put these on the car and, <laughs> right. and I can drive. So. So, so I was facing UCMJ for driving an unregistered, uh, uninsured vehicle with stolen plates on it. Oh no! And 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 uh, so I was in my I was in my window, and so I ended up going down and to to go to where the commander was, the detachment commander. They were they were almost an hour away, so I had to drive ride in the truck down there uh, and go face the commander and. And he did he did two things with me. The first the first meeting was uh my reenlistment um counseling. So he was asking me what my plans were and what I was gonna do and I and basically I told him, Well I'm I am not exactly sure, sir. I I'm I'm considering reenlisting, I really want to and I'd like to reclassify, but it kinda depends on how our next meeting how our next <laughs> session goes. Right. And um and so when I went in for the next, you know, the next, then we changed transition to, uh, the UCMJ and, um, he, he gave me an article 15, but he gave me a verbal admonishment and, um, and he did not take my rank. Um, and so, I mean, I took that with me and I thought, of, I thought of that commander a, a lot throughout my entire career. Uh, even up in when I was thinking about my retirement, r- retiring as a force comm sergeant major, you know, almost almost 30 years before that, I was in an very long interview. Uh, well worth looking up. You just got to uh, do a search for Sar Major Scott Schroeder and it comes up number one on Google. UW Lacrosse apologizes for hosting Pornstar. University of Wisconsin Lacrosse paid five thousand dollars to host host porn star Nina Hartley. UW Lacrosse Chancellor Joe Grow has since apologized and pledged personally to refund the expense. The school now plans to host an anti-porn speaker because of women and stuff. She's like an old-time porn star. When I read the article, and I didn't, you know, 
she's old, like older than me. Um, she has her own movie and everything. It's actually a success story of a woman who was in porn now makes billion, you know, millions of dollars in her own porn industry. But for some reason, the same people who say that you can be, you know, genders fluid, everything's fucking fluid, uh, porn's bad. Okay. NC State rolls out PhD in social justice education. There's a college that stopped teaching history, but now social justice is a PhD. Hmm. North Carolina State University will debut its social justice education PhD program in fall 2019. The program will focus on equity in STEM and scholar activism. NCSU College Republican Chairman Cal Laughter is not pleased with the initiative, but he laughed. Ohio State student group and Shapiro words can threaten mental safety. A student group at Ohio State University sent a warning email to its members prior to Ben Shapiro speaking on campus. The email claimed that many of Shapiro's views are misogynistic, racist, and transphobic. We really can't prove that, but we just don't like what he said. This, of course, goes back to Lack's last podcast that words can hurt you. Sinead O'Connor, I never want to spend time with white people again. Yeah, O'Connor, who now goes by the name Shushada DeVitt, tweeted a racist statement in a series of tweets disparaging non-Muslim culture. I'm terribly sorry. What I'm about to say is something so racist I never thought my soul could ever feel it. But truly, I never want to spend time with white people again, if that's what non-Muslims are called. Not for one moment, for any reason. They are disgusting. Hmm. I don't know why that's a story, because I don't really give a fuck what she thinks, but it is. Male teacher punished for refusing to watch trans students change in the locker room. Hmm. Wow, let me try to find this. In an effort to create safety for LGBTQ students, a Florida school district decided to force male PE teacher to watch a female student change in the boys' locker room, all under the guise of transgender rights. It's hard to pick the most insane story of the year in an insane political year like this one, but this one has got to be close. Clavin cited a Federalist article by Joy Pullman describing a female-to-male student whose coach refused to watch her change in the locker room, a punishment he was transferred to another school for not fulfilling his duty. Uh, with a gag order, school administrators forbade teachers from talking about the change and ordered a male PE teacher to advise a potentially undressed girl in Chiso Middle School locker room, the letter said, when he refused to knowingly place himself in a position to observe a minor female in the nude or otherwise in the state of undress. Administrators told him he'll be transferred for another school as discipline for not doing his job. Hmm. That's one of those catch-22s. If he did it, he'd get in trouble with the parents. That's just liberal right there. That's super liberal. Empire claims fear of death by cop bullet is what it's like to be brown or brown in the, black or brown in the country. Let me try to read today. Yeah. Remember how Fox's Empire claimed two weeks ago that people are thrown in prison for being born black or brown? Apparently that wasn't enough for this show. The latest episode now has a claim that black and brown people are constantly threatened with death by the police anytime they're called on the scene. In a November 14th episode, Treasons, Stagems, and Spoils, Kooky Tarija P. Henson 
becomes concerned when she notices bruises on her sister, Candace Vivica Fox. She then suspects that Candace may be a victim of domestic abuse from her estranged husband. Candace denies any issues, but Cookie grows more concerned when Candace doesn't answer her phone. Cookie then takes matters in her own hands and goes to her sister's place. Blah, blah, blah. And then she said, you called the police on my son. You could have gotten them killed. And Fox thinks she's the representative for their holiday show. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Washington Post. Elvis Medal of Freedom. Ugly message to black people. Chris Richard wrote it on November 15, crowned himself the glory by earning the Post's coveted triple crown with one, crown with one piece. Richard earned Angry Liberal of the Week, Dog Whistle Discerner, and politicized this. Richard was in a snit because the late Elvis Presley was among President Trump's 2018 Medal of Freedom award picks. You, dear reader, may shrug and think maybe Trump likes Elvis, but you're ignorant and probably racist, and you don't work for the Post. Motto, democracy gets to steptic around dusk. You see, Elvis was white. You can look it up. And Donald Trump thinks so deeply about how to make black people uncomfortable or make white supremacists comfortable that, in Richard's words, this is another needling mega maneuver, a little nod to the good old days, back when black visionaries could invent rock and roll, but only a white man could become king. This article even goes into because he met Nixon. Wow. That's some rough shit right there. Wired glorifies environmental crimes as climate activism. A whole article of these people trashing shit and their heroes. Okay. Sarah Santa Maria tweeted, Three terms I'm sick and tired of hearing as they're nothing more than veiled racist, sexist, intolerant attempts to shut down healthy, ethical, humanistic discourse. This is now racist. Virtue signaling? Identity politics, SJW. You can't say it anymore. Those are evil terms. I told you, they just make this shit up as they go along. It is just like a revolving door of, you know what? Well, we're getting, we're losing the argument because people are going, you're virtue signaling. Let's just say that's racist. Okay. Sounds good to me. I mean, of this week's crazy shit, if I did a normal podcast, this would be actually like number two, really. There's one at the end of the podcast that's even better. I just can't believe it. This one cracks me up. Man seeking to legally change his age from 69 to 49. And this is brought to you by my better half, GG in Tennessee. Self-styled positivity guru Emil Ratalablad thinks age is just a number, and his is a number that Dutchman wants changed. The 69-year-old 69, TV personality has asked a court in the Netherlands to approve his request for a new birthday, officially make him 49. With this freedom of choice, choice of names, freeness of gender, and I want to have my age. I want to control myself. During it, he talks about how everything's fluid, so why isn't age fluid? Which prompted me to say, you go, boy, weight's fluid. My doctor says, you're fat ass, you need to lose weight. Weight is just a construct created by people to shame people. That's what I should say from now on. White. We already had gender. We have race is fluid. 
We have sexuality is fluid. Why not age? I'm with him, man. You go, boy. Article from the Atlantic. Why are young people having so little sex? With the rise of hookup apps, American kids are in the midst of sex recession. Well, isn't that horrible? Hmm. That's probably because they want Planned Parenthood to get more business. Okay. Chicago pastor wins the best thing I've ever read in my life. Okay, that's not true, but it's pretty freaking good. Chicago pastor asked man in a drag, in drag, to leave church, go put some man clothes, and he's not sorry. Chicago pastor asked a man dressed in drag to leave a worship service because he was dressed like a woman, stands by his actions after coming under fire. A Facebook video of Sunday Night's Encounter shows Antonio Rocamore of Powerhouse International Ministries asking the unidentified man to step out in the aisle. Can you leave my church and put on man clothes and don't come here like that no more? Rockamore can see be seen telling the man in the video posted by Christian James Luther. I hold a standard in here. Wherever you do on the outside is your business, but I will not let drag queens come in here. If you're going to come in here, you're going to dress like a man. People in the crowd cheered and said, Amen and thank you, Jesus, as Rockmore addressed the young man. But Luther posted the post, or Luther, on Monday because he was angered by what he saw, and it was viewed 420,000 times. Some of y'all are going to have to excuse my language, but I am tired of this shit Luther wrote in his post. In a place that is supposed to be a place of change, a place of deliverance, whatever you want to call it, why would you destroy someone in front of a room full of people? This is kind of bullshit that caused people to go home and commit suicide. Shit like this is the reason that church is no power in 2018. Because they're so worried about the wrong things. The video was kicked up a flurry of debate both on Facebook and on Christian websites, including the Christian Post, that have posted the video. More than 2,000 comments have been left on Luther's Facebook page alone, many criticizing the pastor. What happened to come as you are? God said come and blah, blah, blah. You should be preaching, blah, blah, blah. But Rockmar has supporters too. The church must stand for something, one woman wrote on the Facebook page. People, Paul said to rebuke them openly. Apostle Paul would have stopped the cross-dresser from the parking lot. He was so right for what he said. That's what's wrong with the world today. Y'all allowing this ignorance into the house of the Lord like it's right. Heck no. This is a man going to be blessed for what he did. I don't care how none of y'all feel because it was right. And when they talked to the pastor, he said, I ain't changing my mind. It's my church. Good for him. Good for him. This week was a lot of Facebook craziness. Liberal media, Facebook isn't liberal enough, should be dissolved. New York Times bashes them for allowing Trump's racist hate. Antifa groups smash racism is still on Facebook and Instagram, but Twitter banned them. And Facebook fires a pro-Trump employee after a large donation. A Silicon Valley refuses to support conservative ideas is well known, but some firms won't countenance their employees donating to conservatives. Conservatives. In a congressional hearing in April, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg referenced an employee who was fired calling it inappropriate to address. He denies the termination is politically motivated. Palmer Lucky, found of Oculus, what founder of Oculus, was placed on leave and then fired from Facebook a few days after the Daily Piece reported that he was donated $10,000 to a pro-Trump group called Nimble America. 
At first, according to the Wall Street Journal, Lucky was accused of posting misogynistic comments on a Reddit group called The Donald. Apparently, a user called Nimble Rich Man said he was donating to the group so he could post unflattering memes of Hillary Clinton. The Daily Beast said that Nimble Rich Man was, in fact, Lucky. He was put on leave and encouraged to circulate a statement written for him by Zuckerberg, who wrote that Lucky did not support Trump, but instead supported Libertarian candidate Gary Johnson. Lucky... Lucky's work review throughout his time was positive. He donated $100,000 to Trump's inaugural committee in November of 2016. Lucky was asked to resign in December, refused, and then was fired in March 2017. Former Daily Beast reporter Ben Collins wrote in a series of tweets on Sunday, November 11th, that Journal ignored the unsavory behavior of many Reddit users who belong to the Donald. He said the Donald's an extremist internet community during the 2016 election cycle. He also said the Beast had on record Lucky admitting to be nimble rich man. But it comes down to he was fired because he didn't support Hillary. Doesn't surprise me. Doesn't surprise me. And they can get away with that. I mean, he should sue the shit out of him, but we'll get away with it. This one came up big on local TV and went crazy. I, I, read, I read the statements on there. It just cracked me the fuck up and... I wrote one and got a billion likes for it because I said, you people would have had a blue wave if you didn't get, you know, didn't hyperventilate about everything. And this had some people hyperventilating. Mega for Tykes. Lego-like toy set allows children to build the wall. It's a GoFundMe. They're crowdfunding it. It's not even a real thing yet, but the left lost their mind including NBC affiliate in Nashville that just, oh, they were just, oh, I can't believe this. People. There was Obama dolls. Do I need to say anything else? Parents charged with using kids' identities to rack up debt. Motherfuckers. They're little kids. They open up credit cards. TSA reporting thousands of people getting caught toting frozen turkeys in their luggage. They suggest you shouldn't do that. (laughs) That'd have to be a big suitcase. Police locate mother and son who escaped from jail. It's because they used their phone when they stopped at the IHOP. You know, if you're going to break out from jail, why would you go get pancakes? I mean, really, I know they've rebranded burgers and shit, but they're still a pancake house. Fucking crazy. Spaghetti-O assault. I, I'm not making this shit up. One woman injured, another facing charges following incident in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh woman is facing several charges after allegedly throwing several cans of SpaghettiOs at a woman's vehicle in a Pittsburgh Tarrant Village neighborhood. The incident happened last month as the victim was expected to meet with a man who was ex- expected to provide money for her children. The victim said when she approached the Allegheny Union Plaza building on Central Avenue, a woman approached her and began throwing cans of SpaghettiOs at her car. The victim said she tried to get out of the car. The suspect tried stabbing her with a kitchen knife. The victim was cut in the finger but managed to get away. Police said the victim's vehicle had broken back window, multiple dents. It was smeared with the tasty, tasty SpaghettiO red sauce and pieces of pasta. I'm thinking getting hit by a can of SpaghettiOs probably fucking hurt. But that's not the craziest one. Cops! 
McDonald's worker charged in bacon attack. That's a real thing. Cook tried to shove hot crispy bacon in the manager's face. They don't have the name in here. Well, I guess they do. They do have the name. She looks like Shanene from freaking uh, Martin. I swear to God. A McDonald's cook tried to shove hot crispy bacon in the face of her manager during a confrontation Friday that resulted in assault and battery charges being filed. Cops said that the fast food employee faced off at a McDonald's in Buffleton, South Carolina, after manager Tequila Cohen, 33, asked cook Josefina Jimenez to stop eating the bacon while she was working in the kitchen. When Jimenez continued consuming the pork delicacy, <laughs> I like how that's written, Cohen seemed at right, lodged a complaint with the boss, the eatery general manager. As detailed the Beaufort County Sheriff Office report, Jimenez became angry when Cohen escalated the November 9 bacon beef. The employee allegedly backed Cohen in the corner and tried to force feed her hot crispy bacon. Investigators charged that when Cohen sought to push away from Jimenez, the employee still grasping the bacon struck Cohen in the face. Jimenez also last allegedly tossed a cup of unknown substance at Cohen. After the women were separated by a third McDonald's employee, Cohen called 911. Yeah. I would take the bacon beatdown. I'm just saying, I would take the bacon beatdown. I'm all about some bacon. And we'll close with a ode to a legend. When I was a kid, I was forced to watch Hee Haw. I did not like Hee Haw. But now I watch Hee Haw every Sunday as I go to sleep. We watch America's Funniest. And then I watch a Hee Haw episode. I don't watch the whole thing. But it's really funny because of some of the clothes they wear and the hairstyles. And some of the humor is just like, wow, that's really bad. But um, Roy Clark was just a great guy. Um, I hated Buck Owens, but I liked Roy Clark. and He died at 85. So here is a little snippet of Pickin' and a Grinning. Yet? Yeah, and you wouldn't believe the crowd. Hmm. I said to this one woman, have you ever seen such confusion? Hmm. And she said, well, mister, you ought to know you're in the ladies' room. <laughs> Jerry, yes. you want to come with me tonight to a lecture at the auditorium? It's on sex appeal. Hmm. No, thanks. I already gave. <laughs> time is it by your watch? It's exactly 10-2. 10 to what? Uh, I don't know. Times was tough. I had to lay off one of the hands. <laughs> Jerry! Boy, you look 
look like you could need a you look like you need a haircut man. Have you tried Archie's barbershop yet? Yes, yeah, matter of fact, I had. I was over this afternoon, but his hands was dirty. I just wouldn't let him cut my hair. Dirty hands? How disgraceful, Archie. Who ever heard of a barber with dirty hands? Well, it wasn't my fault. It just so happened at that particular time nobody had asked for a shampoo. <laughs> That's too bad. He was a good guy. Funny thing came out this week. Um, I guess in an argument of his anti-gun stance, somehow David Hogg, that little twat, said that uh, the way to take care of shark attacks is to have more sharks because that's what the gun people said. So the Daily Wire brought out the USA Today crazy graphics of a bayonet with you know a, a freaking chainsaw bayonet on a gun well they did a shark one now which i think is just hilarious somebody took the usa graphic and put a shark bayonet on an ar and i just thought that was hilarious so that's kind of our our lighter fare but the whole show is pretty light well except for the level portion some uh, news catch-up before we close out. Caravans at the border. People are jumping over the fence. They showed them jumping over the fence while they said they're not a threat to America. That was the stories, and I just thought it was funny. Amazon picked their new uh, headquarters. Come to find out, New York gave $1.5 billion in tax credits to these motherfuckers. They're paying for the buildings. So I guess liberals are for paying people shit that are for their causes? Is that what it is? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm all for it because, yeah, you're going to get a lot of taxation eventually from Amazon, but $500 million to build their headquarters? Are you fucking shitting me? It's a trillion dollar. I mean, more than a trillion dollars. I don't know what the fuck they make a year. It's a shit ton. I bet if I Googled it, it's more than a trillion. But you're paying for it. Hmm. Israel got rocketed 108 times per usual. Our media ignored it. But the big thing that happened was the CMAs happened. And the media just didn't like it. Um, 52nd Annual Country Music Association Award with a breath of fresh air when it comes to leftist political propaganda because unlike most awards show lately, there wasn't any. The show started with a moment of silence for the victims of November 7th shooting in South Thousand Oak with no mention of gun control or political positions just honoring the victims of a tragic shooting throughout the show they praised the military thanking veterans for their service they invited daniel and an army veteran to talk about how google and the uso is helping veterans find jobs brad paisley even gave him the guitar he used in the show on behalf of us grateful country music artists so i'm going to play a soundbite about how they did it and how the view and cnn and others didn't like that they just didn't turn it into a shit show. I'm Garth Brooks, and on behalf of our country music community, I want to say that tonight's show is lovingly dedicated to the 12 individuals whom we lost far too soon just a week ago tonight at the borderline in Thousand Oaks, California. Tonight, let's celebrate their lives. Let the music unite us with love and their enduring memory. So please join me now in a moment of silence. Love that old dominion. I'm Kelly Pickler, 
and I'm proud to be here with Daniel, a country music fan and Army veteran. Daniel, we hear Grow With Google is helping Americans, including veterans like yourself, grow their skills, careers, and businesses. You're here as a guest of Google and the USO, right? Thank you, Kelly, and yes, I am. I served for 20 years, and the support that I received from Google and the USO was critical in my transition. Google recently launched a job search tool for veterans like myself to look for jobs that match with the skill set and experiences that we have. And I'm proud to say with their support, I was finally able to land a new career. Who are you excited to see perform tonight? I'm a huge Brad Paisley fan. I cannot wait to see him. Ooh, huh. Brad, hey, hey, did you hear that? I did hear that. Hi, Daniel, nice to meet you. Nice Thank you for you, your Brad. service. Thank you for the support. Appreciate it. On behalf of all of us grateful country music artists, we wanted you to have this. Oh, thank you so much, This Brad. is yours. Appreciate do you play? It. Uh, yes, I do. Great, that's fantastic. Well, why don't you introduce the next performer for us? Uh, definitely, Brad. Thank you. Up next, after the break, Carrie Underwood takes the stage. And later, Brad Paisley with a new guitar. Yes. <laughs> Welcome home. Thank you. Well... Despite what you might be thinking, these purple bags right here aren't full of whiskey. They're full of generosity. And here to tell us more is Thomas Rhett. Welcome to the Purple Bag Project. We're going to go in and see what's happening. Through their Purple Bag Project, Crown Royal is repurposing its iconic purple bags, filling them with essentials and shipping them to military service members overseas. So good to see you. I really appreciate you coming today. So as we head into the holidays, the most generous time of the year, some friends and I are joining forces to pack care packages to show our appreciation for some real American heroes. Thank you so much to our military around the world for your service. Yeah. Thanks, Thomas. Is there anything more important than that? I don't think so. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, no, God. I don't know why we keep winning this. Um, if this was in Florida, there would definitely be a recount. <laughs> um, hey. I'm overreacting to this, but I, I believe that everybody should be in, uh, involved in politics right now. Mm. I really do. I don't believe that you get a pass just because you're a performer. Yeah, I but believe, not everybody wants to watch it on television. I get that, but okay, I, that's my, what she's talking my about. personal belief is yeah. that we are in an emergency. The democracy is at risk. And that everybody should be speaking up. Well, everybody. But as we saw, people came out. People voted. People yeah. came out. I'm happy engaged, for that. But I do think that sometimes, it's like when I do my shows. I don't want to talk about that's politics. That's fine. I want to talk about me. Well, you talk, but, but, but you know, talk about it here. But what do you but think, Gloria? I mean, because we've had guests on our show like Reba McIntyre, Dolly Parton, yes. and they've said, you know, I think perhaps they feel that their brand will be tarnished, and they also have said, you know, I don't want to bring politics Look, in. I, I just want to entertain. Listen, I know that yeah. if I stayed neutral, I would make ten times more money than I earn, tell you the truth. Mm. But I make the decision to speak my mind and give my opinion, because that's what I believe that's should right. be done. I feel like everybody should be able to do that. I do believe that. Yes. I believe everybody it. And a lot of these people who are saying they're decision. neutral have made enough money. But let me say this also. 30% of millennials voted in this last yeah. election. Yeah. Somebody said the other, that was great. But, but 70% did not. And that upsets me because somebody said the other day, if young people voted, they could rule the world. That's and true. they are not taking it seriously. We are in a crisis situation. Well, we haven't. Well, we um, haven't actually made them take it seriously. Well, we, you know, because we only talk this way when stuff comes down to the line. Perhaps if we started the conversation before we needed to, maybe that would help. But I also think that not everybody is cut out to be po politically yeah. out with folks. 
Once again, proving what I say, liberals are the most hypocritical dipshits in the planet. Our peak 2018 tweet to end the show and send us off to a holiday break, because I'll be on vacation through Wednesday, is Nate Silver. This is an actual tweet. I referenced it earlier. The most lack of self-awareness tweet I can find. The recent rhetoric from Trump and often other Republicans trying to delegitimize election results is awfully dangerous. Maybe the most openly authoritarian move he's made so far. That's a liberal. And since November 9th, 2016, they've tried like 12 different avenues to say that he's not a legitimate president. But now that they won some success in the midterms, we're back to delegitimizing the presidency. There's proof 200,000 people who are illegal voted in Florida in 2012. That came out this week. There are voter fraud cases all over the place. Cinema was awarded the governorship of a state she despises. And she won by more votes than Trump did, which is an impossibility. Georgia and Florida, there are so many cases of where are these votes coming from. They don't make sense. They're statistically impossible when you find 3,000 votes and 93% of them are Democrat. That's not a possibility. We have problems with our elections. And it's not conservatives. It's not the middle of the country. It's liberals. Think back to 2012, my friends. They stomped free speech, 501Cs, because they were conservative. And we have one that was created by Obama who just made, even though they're a nonpartisan, nonprofit for voting registration, made over 70 videos pro-Democrat. When they can't win, they steal it. Too many cases for me not to believe that anymore. And I'm not a Trump follower. I'm just a realist. Videos pile up of people saying they let DACA people vote. Illegal votes. During the 2012, all the Project Veritas, we bus people multiple times. We played that on the show. It's not edited. That's your people talking. So, we have a problem with our elections. We really do. And it's to a point that, I'm sorry, you can call it racist. Voter ID needs to be a thing. They need to electronic this stuff. With electronic connected. So that people can't multiple votes. Because I read a story the other day about Democrats, so they couldn't get caught, were voting in different states with the same people. There is votes back to 1896. People born in 1896. Just one county, they found over 100 votes from people that were born in 1896 and it all correlated to a local cemetery. So, yeah, there is some voter 
problems. We probably need to get it fixed. So, I wish all of you, my listeners, a fantastic Thanksgiving. I will not do a podcast next week. As stated, I'll get back to late Wednesday, Thanksgiving Day, Friday and Saturday's family. My son's going to be over. Um, so, we'll, we'll look at the next podcast being uh, probably, let me see, November 19th. No, I'm a dumbass. November 26th. Let's go November 26th. Will be the next podcast. Um, and by then, I'm sure we'll have some very interesting things. So, this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politics Podcast. Please feel free to share this with family and friends and send segment suggestions or comments to FOPPODCAST at gmail.com, FOPPodcastGmail.com. Get the show on SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, and Stitcher. Remember to check out the Flyover Politics webpage at FOPPODCAST.com. Pop. Podcast.com. It's a theme. See links to feeds of the show. There's links to the Facebook page and email us. And on the episode release is a link to every episode. So we'll talk to each other in over 10 days from now. I hope you have a fantastic Thanksgiving. Don't get wrapped up in the football. Disconnect from your devices. Don't give the yeah yeahs. And give thanks. We are truly blessed to live in this country and we have plenty of things to be thankful for. Even though it seems on my podcast, all I do is pitch and moan about life in general, politically. We're still a great country. So, enjoy your family. Have a great turkey. And I'll talk to you on the 26th. Until then, thanks for listening. And take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Remember to check out our website at foppodcast.com. And remember, it's a short ride. Make every day count. Cause I feel